Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We're so glad you're joining us. This is episode 138. We are recording this on Sunday, August 8th at 3 p.m. Pacific time. I am your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, at least for the start of this one, we've got the full gang, Zach Saltz, Todd Plucknett, Adam Daly, uh, but not in the same room this time. We are all back home. Everyone's returned to their uh, to their place of residence. Uh, and... Uh, and and we're doing this kind of normal now. I, I kind of feel a little more comfortable doing this doing this normal after last week was was a was a bit nuts. We had way too many side conversations for us all to be in the same room recording a podcast. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> but now no one has anything to say. This is a problem. So now we have dead air. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now now it's just awkward, and it was awkward trying to edit our conversation last week <laughs> yeah i bet hey props to you though that was actually turned out really that was a fun listen to at least oh well thank so you that, that was you. fun yeah, that was like I, it was like the podcast equivalent of terrence malick giving you two thousand hours of film to somehow turn into something coherent <laughs> there we go Perfect. yeah exactly exactly I, I that was a master edit job by me i must say uh, so we have a lot to do this episode, so we're going to be talking about what we've been watching. Uh, we've got some movies to review. We have a deep dive of one of Todd's guilty pleasures that we're going to be looking at. And um, and then uh, we also, since, so last week we uh, we revealed our 151 of our top 100. And that, as you could, if you listen to that kudos to you because it was it ended up being two and a half hours and that was edited down from three and a half hours and um and we were gonna do all of it but then it was gonna be just way too long we talked about it kind of uh kind of uh what what i'm on abstractly I, yeah well i'm trying to think of the, the, the completely just casually kind of talked yeah. about some of it and uh yeah. so we're gonna continue on with that conversation which is why adam's here to start so we are going to reveal the rest like 10 at a time over the next several weeks uh building up to number one and so that's what uh, that's what we're going to be doing so we have a lot to do in this podcast and we'd like it to be shorter than last week's so let's get into this uh with what are we drinking today uh zach what are you drinking I'm having some Ad Astra uh, beer from from uh, Free State Brewing Company from Lawrence, Kansas. Free State needs to be a, an unofficial sponsor now. I mean, we all drank Ridgewalker last week, so. Did we? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I yes, don't yes, we did. We Plead did. the fifth. It was good from the from the remembrance. Yeah, it was good. Todd, what did, what do you got? I got the Lagunitas Maximus Colossal IPA. Which is about nine percent alcohol. That's nice. really good. Lagunitas is one of my favorite underrated uh, breweries. Lagunitas ain't bad. It's not bad. Adam, what do you got? I got a Kirkland Signature uh, Aqua. Very nice. nice. I figured nice. to keep it nice, coherent today. I'm good. I'm doesn't good. this feel? Doesn't this feel like the scene at the end of? Uh, 
uh god i'm totally blanking now they're gonna think i'm drunk i'm not uh (laughs) (laughs) never mind terry what are you drinking i'll come back to my point so i've got i went to ridgewalker again today and um this is a brand new one they just put on tap this is their uh their summer they have a long strides ipa and they add a bunch of fruit to it in the summer and get and make it long strides on the beach and so this is long strides on the beach it has mango and blood orange and i think some guava Mm. in it and it is like really hazy and like a ridiculous color it looks more like a cider but it's really good yeah it's really good sounds good Sounds delicioso. Yeah, what I was gonna say is this feels like the last scene of Super Bad after everyone has woken up after the party and they had <laughs> an awkward encounter call. at the mall. The Emma Stone's face is messed up. Yeah, I like that. That should be a deep dive at some point, by the way. And male camel toe. <laughs> no camel toe. <laughs> okay, so let's hop into this. What have we been watching? We're gonna go to Todd first. Uh, so I decided to shift from Mickey Rourke to Matt Dillon this week, and I chose the 1988 David Stevens movie called Kansas, Ooh. which more stars uh, Andrew McCarthy. He plays this guy named Wade, who um, is returning home for a wedding, and he hops aboard a boxcar where he finds the Doyle, played by Matt Dillon, and he decides, he kind of befriends him, and they decide they're going to stop in Kansas because Matt Dillon's like, oh, we got to go to this festival. But the thing that he's doing is the festival is going on. So he decides he's going to rob the bank in Lawrence and um, <laughs> and help has Wade help him at gunpoint uh, because he sort of is reluctant at the beginning. And once they sort of get away and like stash the money somewhere, like Wade kind of becomes this reluctant, like uh, local hero kind of thing. And so <laughs> there's a whole bunch more attention put on them and things get really complicated. But Doyle is like this really violent man who's going to do anything to get his money back. Um, and movie feels really old fashioned, like like 1940s old fashioned. It's, it's sort of like of mice and men if it was like a like a coming of age movie or something. But Dylan is really good in this. He's just like a natural like James Dean student almost. But it's like something that I could have seen Kevin Bacon also play at the same time. But he he must have been at the peak of his stardom at this point, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood because this was right around the same time as Drugstore Cowboy. Him and Tom Cruise are probably like the the, the go to guys for that age range. Andrew McCarthy isn't that great. Like, he was about the 10th most interesting person that could have had this role. Like, I would have chosen someone more gullible, like an Anthony Michael Hall or something. But Andrew McCarthy, I I mean, there's a reason why he doesn't really work anymore. But uh, supposedly, like, 25% of the lines in the movie are by, like, local Lawrence non-actors, which kind of makes it kind of cool. But uh, they make all the fans... Yeah, but, I mean, they they make them all complete idiots, similar to Almost Famous, I guess, in that way. Uh, it has a really 80s score at the same time, which kind of clashes with the sensibilities of what the movie's trying to do. I It had a really promising start, and it was really edgy, and then it got just, like, further and further away from that, a little cliche. It sort of has a satisfying conclusion, but it's, like, constantly searching for an identity. But, I mean, I, I think it was sort of worth watching just because Matt Dillon's really good. But it, it's still just a two-star movie. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Nice. Zach, have you seen that? I, I live there, so I don't need to see it. I feel like uh, I've lived that, I've lived that story. <laughs> Isn't that from uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure? I don't need to see it. I lived it. Yes, yeah. exactly. All right. Adam, what did you watch this week? All right. Well, there's. I've actually watched a Casino 
for Martin Scorsese Ooh. film from 1995 for the first time. I want to just quickly touch on that before I really uh, talk about the movie I really want to talk about. Uh, but Casino, I thought was very super underrated Scorsese film that uh, surprisingly made me want to go to Vegas again. So I'm definitely looking forward to that movie or going there again, hopefully with all four of us. That'd be fun. Uh, but yeah, Sharon Stone's good, deserving of the Oscar nomination. After surprisingly uh, very low-key Oscars from this movie, only one nomination, which is kind of surprising, but I really liked all the performances. And actually, the three hours kind of goes really fast, so 3.5 on that movie. But the movie I wanted, really want to talk about was a documentary that came out that I found on um, Amazon called Closed for Storm, which is... Um, a, from a YouTuber from Bright Sun Films, he has he has this abandoned series where he talks about a lot of abandoned uh, parks, like from Disney or Six Flags and or abandoned buildings. And he even talks about like different stores and why they failed in Canada and stuff like that, too. So it's a really cool series. And I've seen this actually this park and this film is based off the uh, Six Flags New Orleans when uh, Hurricane Katrina came out and it basically has never reopened since. But it takes it place. This is a longer uh, scale of the, the YouTube show and makes it a feature length film where they actually inter interview people who actually live in the area and their property values immediately skyrocketed because this park's right in the, the middle of their city. And then 2005 or Hurricane Katrina happened. Huh? Yeah, just hang up and I'll call them back. Okay, sorry, my work phone went off. Um, anyway, um, so anyway, the, the hurricane slowed, stopped this whole uh, city, of course, and then he actually shows footage of him going inside the park and exploring the remains of it and kind of talks about the people who actually worked there and uh, actually didn't get anybody from Six Flags, but they also talked to the people who are running for public office in New Orleans and seeing if they wanted to try to propose plans to either tear down this park or try to rebuild it in some way. Uh, to its formal glory before Six Flags, uh, Six Flags came in and bought them out. So it's very interesting dynamic and uh, this really interesting time capsule of a film. So Close for Storm is an easy three-star film. It's also cool to see another YouTuber make making a feature-length film. So there we go, Close for Storm. Check it out if you're interested in cool documentaries like that. Nice, nice. All right, Zach, did you watch anything? Uh, I tried to watch When Harry Met Sally on an airplane. <laughs> so yeah you try doing that no i did not watch anything this week okay that's okay that's okay uh so for me i, I have a lot of stuff i want to touch on so i'm gonna go kind of quick uh so two weeks ago or last week we didn't talk about what we watched but i want to mention my anniversary watch because it wasn't just one watch it was three uh i went back uh to 2011 to one of the oscar nominated documentaries from that year, which was Paradise Lost 3 Purgatory. And in order to watch Paradise Lost 3, I had to watch Paradise Lost and Paradise <laughs> Lost 2 to understand what it was all about. So um, I know Zach has seen the first one, uh, Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. And it's a very similar documentary to Murder on a Sunday Morning in that there is a there was a senseless murder, uh, gruesome murder that happened. And there were those that were... Uh, arrested and um and eventually convicted of the crime really ended up there simply because of uh wrong place wrong time and who they were and what they represented in murder on a sunday morning it was racial stereotyping in here it's kind of belief stereotyping where they had one person who uh one teenager 
who was uh, very um, who had some mental handicaps and they interrogated him for 12 hours until he gave a confession and pointed at two other people, which were probably names that were given to him by the cops. One of them practiced Wicca and they and they thought that there may have been some satanic rituals that were involved in these in the murders of three uh, eight year old boys. And so they arrested him and convicted him uh, from this coerced testimony and the fact that one of them dabbled in witchcraft at one point in his life. So that's the first uh, the first one. The second and by far the best one is the first one. The second one is okay. It's a three star movie. The first one's three and a half stars. But Paradise Lost Two Revelations really talks about the role that um, that the film had played has played in the story of these three convicted murderers, and how that has helped kind of keep the case alive and keep people on the lookout for who may have done it. And really tries to point the finger at a specific person who's one of the fathers or stepfathers of one of the kids that was murdered, which was fascinating to watch. And the guy is kind of a, a cartoon in a lot of the stuff that he does, and he's completely off his rocker. And actually ended up in prison himself for something else soon after the uh, movie was done filming. That's a three-star movie. Paradise Lost 3 is a three-and-a-half-star movie where you hear how this whole thing ends up playing out. Um, and I can tell you right now, because you kind of you probably get the sense, eventually they do end up free. But how it gets there is a really, really odd and not necessarily what you'd expect and kind of more infuriating than anything else that happens. Um and so uh, it's a three and a half star movie as well. Like I said, the first one is the best one, but the first two were just considered HBO movies. And the third one actually got a theatrical release, even though it was still HBO films. And uh, and so it got nominated for the Oscar. But it's a fascinating uh, documentary series telling the story of these three, uh, these three teenagers who spent a long time in prison during all of this. And uh, how they kept on fighting for their freedom. And uh, and one was on death row. Two of them had life uh, life sentences and they and uh, just really telling their story. And it's fascinating, like I said, how much of making the filmmakers uh, who were uh, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Janowski, how they end up playing a role in the story. Like in the first one, they're just filming this this trial. And then one of the someone gives them a knife as a gift that is that has blood on it. That might be the blood of one of the kids. And all, so all of a sudden they are like handing over potential evidence in a murder case. It, it, it's, it's bizarre. And then as you get into the sequels, you hear about how the making of the first one really has, has turned these, these murderers into celebrities and how one of them ended up married from uh, one of the people who were fighting for their freedom. They, they met and ended up getting married out of all this. It, it's just a, an incredible story and i love how they kept on coming back to it and telling more parts of it but yeah um the paradise lost trilogy really fascinating really worth looking at and they're all on hbo max zach i know you've seen the first one um and you really liked it too yeah and i think that's a good comparison to murder on a sunday morning because in a way it's not so much about the case but the sort of buried message of the story is about the culture wars if you want to call them that happen in arkansas where these kids are just unfairly maligned um and it's sort of this kind of paranoid of you know um culture of uh you know being afraid of devil worship uh it's it's really um, powerful stuff the filmmakers exercise a lot of restraint 
um, in the documentary. What's also kind of interesting too, Terry, is that uh, there was another documentary called West of Memphis that was uh, made about it. And this was made within the last 10 years. And I believe Damien Eccles was one of the filmmakers or one of the producers on it. I think you're right. Yeah. And then Adam Egoian actually made a feature length uh, scripted film uh, called Devil's Knot, I think in 2013. I've not seen either of those, but obviously this case has uh, generated a lot of kind of cinematic uh, portrayal and interest. And, and as of right now, I think there there's still has been no arrest uh, made for the actual person who, who did these crimes, which kind of re is related to how they ended up being released from prison. It's really messed up. But yeah, anyways. I, great uh, examination of hysteria in a community. Absolutely. Oh, my word. <laughs> Even more so than a murder mystery, quite quite frankly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, okay. So that was that was two weeks ago. This week... Uh, I'd have you guys guess, but Todd saw it and found out when he was over with what I'm watching next. Uh, going back 20 years to 2001, uh, it is a sole Oscar nominee for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, it is The Royal Tenenbaums, uh, directed by Wes Anderson, written by Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson. Yes, Owen Wilson is an Oscar nominee thanks to this movie. And it wow. tells the story of the... Uh, oh, wow, yeah. Um, it tells the story of of the Tenenbaum family, Royal being the, the father, played by Gene Hackman, and uh, Etheline is the mother, played by Angelica Houston, and their three children, Gwyneth Paltrow, Ben Stiller, and Luke Wilson, and their childhood friend from across the street, played by Owen Wilson. And then you have Bill Murray, Danny Glover, and a host of others making appearances too. Wes Anderson is a very acquired taste, and I feel like to fully appreciate his movies, you have to watch him two or three times. Um, I was not... I did not have the time to watch Royal Tenenbaums two or three times. I'm giving it three stars. It was fine. It had some heart to it. It's a it's so quirky and so weird, but I know it's one that if I were to watch it a couple more times, and I know I haven't, my Wes Anderson experience is very, very limited. Like, I've seen Fantastic Mr. Fox, and I've seen Grand Budapest Hotel, and now Royal Tenenbaums. And I know Grand Budapest Hotel, every time I watch it, I like it more and more. And I have a feeling that'd be the same thing with Royal Tenenbaums. But for right now, it was fine. Three stars, quirky, has some heart to it. I thought my favorite was Ben Stiller. I thought he was a fascinating character um, playing Chaz Tenenbaum, who is just paranoid about so many different things and with full right to be so. But uh, yeah, that well, was... Yeah, yeah, his wife died. It's fair. Yeah, it, I, I, like I said, he has full reason to be paranoid. It, but and then the it shapes everything that he does, every reaction he has. It's yeah, really, really interesting movie. Three stars there. Uh, and then just one last thing I want to mention: my new number one of 2021, Nine Days. I'm not going to say anything mm. about it, but Nine wow. Days is a masterpiece, and you Whoa. need to go watch it if you've ever, if you haven't seen it yet. Go see Nine Days. It is absolutely incredible. Like jaw drop on the floor. Amazing. Amazing. I'm not going to say anything else because dude. it's better knowing less going into that movie. I thought it was pretty good. I mean, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yep. Yep. My first four star of 2021, nine days. Wow. All right. So there we go. There's what we've been watching. Now let's get into our lists. Uh, we have we like I said last week we revealed 100 to 51. This week we are going to just do 50 to 41. And like I said, we're going to reveal our next 10, like each episode moving forward here for the next few weeks. So be watching out for that. 
Uh, so we're going to get into this. We did the first half so far. Uh, and I think the order we went in before, it was it was Zach, then Adam, then me, then Todd. So let's stick to that. Let's stick to that order. And we're just going to rattle through 50 to 41. Let's go no Merlots since we're going quick and we're only doing these 10. No Merlots during this. Okay. okay? So, Zach, give us uh, give us 50 to 41 on your, uh, on your list and then we'll give you crap about it when you're done. Okay. Number 50 on my list, we've actually already mentioned on this podcast, is uh, one of my favorite documentaries of uh, all time, of the 2000s, certainly. It is Murder on a Sunday Morning, directed by John Xavier de Lestrade. Uh, a powerful documentary that depicts uh, a total mistrial of justice and basically the best documentary you could watch about systematic racism uh, and uh, the police uh, system in this country, the, the uh, criminal justice system. Awesome, awesome documentary that I hope more people see. Number 49 is Fatih Akin's The Edge of Heaven from 2007, um, a movie that um, I may even bring up a little later in the podcast because one of the movies we watched uh, this week is a little reminiscent of it in a way, but a movie that is very much about globalization and about cross-cultural flows and I think is absolutely terrific. One of those, one of the best of the hyperlink movies that were popular in the 2000s. Number 48 is The Truman Show. Uh, not need, don't need to say much about that. Awesome movie. Perfect, uh, great Jim Carrey performance. Number 47, This is Spinal Tap the funniest mockumentary ever made, still holds up extremely well in my opinion, and I may have all the songs on my phone that Spinal Tap ever did, including from their albums like Intervenus de Milo and Shark Sandwich, aka Shit Sandwich. Number 46 is my highest rated animated film, which is also my number one animated movie of the 2000s. It is The Red Turtle by Michael Dudok de Witt. The Red Turtles can fly. The red turtles absolutely <laughs> can fly. In fact, I'm struggling to remember. Maybe the red turtle actually does fly in that movie. Wouldn't surprise me. Um, but uh, yes, uh, awesome, awesome, uh, very abstract uh, and ethereal uh, animated movie that is virtually perfect. Number 45 is the movie that puts Todd and Terry to sleep, Castaway. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite Robert Zemeckis movies. Uh, number 44 is a movie I reviewed a couple weeks ago on this podcast. It is my newest entry to my top 50. It is Edward Yang's A Brighter Summer Day. Uh, masterpiece. If you want to hear more about it, listen to my uh, description of it from a couple weeks ago. Number 43 is another movie from 1991. It is John Singleton's Boys in the Hood which Terry recently saw and I believe gave four stars to fairly a uh, great movie that holds up extremely well. Number 42, my dinner with Andre, a movie that used to be my top 10. Now listening to two white guys kind of drone on about philosophy for two hours is not quite as, uh, you know, thrilling as maybe it used to be. But um, I think the movie actually is, is still really good and just still fun to watch, even at like 12 o'clock midnight. A great exploration of art, theater, performance, um, and uh, culture and politics. Number 41 is Nowhere in Africa by Caroline Link, the foreign film winner from 2002. One of my all-time favorite German films, a movie that probably gets underappreciated because it's just kind of considered a mediocre foreign film winner, but it is an excellent, excellent movie about culture, again, kind of culture clash and uh, family uh, survival during uh, World War II. All right. All right. So run those down for us, uh, 50 to 41. 
50 was uh, Murder on a Sunday Morning. 49 was The Edge of Heaven. 48 was The Truman Show. 47 is This is Final Tap. 46 is The Red Turtle. 45 is Castaway. 44 is A Brighter Summer Day. 43 is Boys in the Hood. 42 is My Dinner with Andre. And 41 is Nowhere in Africa. All right. Todd, I don't know if you're keeping track of your uh, of your odds at all, but I think, once again, Rob Reiner was an oversight. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, I mean, and, uh, I am not. I, what i'm not keeping track right now so you're not keeping track right now okay when we get to the end i'd love to still be able to hear where we're all at with yeah i i will i will report back when i have all the lists uh of the movies i've seen i can't really argue with any of them i think uh you saying truman show officially makes it the first movie that's popped up on all four lists and uh, that's going way under that prop bet uh, I actually know the answer to that question right now, so oh, okay. I'm going to uh, withhold that information right now. Um, yeah, so Murder on a Sunday Morning is great. It's like a sore thumb on, that, on those 10. Like, that, that is one that does not fit with anything else on there. Which one? I didn't hear. Castaway. Oh. I think Castaway and Truman Show are, are you could say, are similar in tone. Yeah. I don't know, everything else is, a, is like a broader, like exploration of like existence and philosophy or something but and then spinal tap well yeah okay. <laughs> spinal tap's very philosophical you count dust for vomit yeah uh, i i understand todd i have an irrational love of castaway i remember seeing it in a theater and uh i don't know there's a fantasy element in my life that I, most people watch castaway and they think how horrible it was for tom hanks to have abandoned his life for four years and to lose all that time I kind of think it's a fantasy. I would like to crash land a plane on a desert island and not talk to anyone for four years. So I see it as a fantasy, not a not a survival movie. He, he did try to hang himself. <laughs> he did. That's he true. Did. Yeah. Uh, I, I see. I see murder on a Sunday morning there, and I think one of the prop bets was how many more documentaries Zach would have on his list than anybody else. And I think I might have everybody beaten documentaries at least even at least so far. Wow, so, really? Okay. There we go. Yeah, because I I had a bunch. Yeah, but we'll more. we'll have to see exactly when uh when it's all all said and done. And yes, I, Boys in the Hood definitely. Uh, yeah. I I, I saw point. it a little too recently to put it on my list, but uh, I agree that it uh it deserves some recognition. And I totally knew you were gonna have a brighter summer day on there, even though you just watched yeah. it a few weeks ago. Well, listen, I have, I have, I would want to say like um, a lot of movies, a surprising amount of movies that I've watched in the pandemic on my top 100 list. So two of which I just mentioned, but um, I don't know if that happened for you guys, but maybe the pandemic impacted me in ways that I wouldn't have expected in that way. Yeah, that's happened. I can see that. All right. All right, let's move Adam, on. 50 to 41. All right. Number 50 is 1978's film from John Carpenter. Halloween. Now, this is the first Halloween film. Uh, I'm uh, I'm a, the horror guy. Maybe I I like horror films. I think Halloween Wait, is one of those ones. Are we gonna have props I... for every single pick now? I was oh thinking about goodness. doing that too. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the benefit of being in our own homes when we're doing this. I guess. <laughs> there we go. I'm a huge fan of this actually franchise. I think only like three movies, and I do not care for too much. But the first film for me, I. Thoroughly enjoy. I love from the, the score to the, the performances to the, uh, the the stalker here. Mike Myers is 
kind of terrifying. Uh, maybe not. Maybe he comes across maybe more terrifying in the Rob Zombie films or even the David Gordon Green film from a few years ago. But I, I still really enjoy this film quite a bit, and I definitely had to put it in my top 50. I knew when I was putting this list together that was going to be my number 50 film, and everything kind of worked around it. That's how it could. Maybe that's kind of weird. Uh, number uh, 2014's film Number 49 is Damien Chazelle's Whiplash. Now, I know when we were recording this, everybody said this was way low. Because do you know, Adam, This is why is, why is this so <laughs> low? But uh, for me, Whiplash was, is a fantastic film. My favorite film of 2014. I still really love Boyhood, but I think uh, excitement level leaving a theater, Whiplash was set the bar so high for me. I love the, uh, the ending finale of that scene, and Mr. Fletcher is a terrifying villain in real life. There we go. And great performance from J.K. Simmons, I should say. Uh, number 70, uh, number, what number is this? Four, uh, 48, 1972's The Godfather by Francis Ford Coppola. Now, this is one of my big blind spots. I haven't seen the other two films, and uh, The Godfather is a fantastic film. I, I absolutely love it. I did have to want to revisit this one before I journey into the other two films so I can get a full s scope of everything that happened. But uh, from Brando to all the other performances in here, there it's top-notch uh, kind of moth uh gangster type movie and godfather is a fantastic choice had to be in my top 50. uh my next pick at number 46 is going to be 1931 or 1947 or ah, shit, uh, 47 it's gonna be 1931's charlie chaplin film city lights uh, i really love this film the ending of this film is fantastic i thoroughly enjoy what chaplin was able to do till that boxing sequence and everything and this is a film that actually my daughter can came, came in and was like why is everything being um why aren't they talking, Dad? I'm like, I was explaining that this is a silent film, and she actually sat through the whole film, and I really love City Lights a lot. So uh, my number 46 film is one I recently just watched, and that's from 1954, On the Waterfront, with uh, another Brando film here. Uh, but On the Waterfront is a fantastic film. Brando's performance is one of the best I've seen in a very long time, and I really enjoyed the kind of uh, gangstery feel and the Teamsters conversations here, too. So I had to put uh, On the Waterfront easily made my top 50 here number 45 now this is a director's cut not technically the normal film but this is blade runner from 1982 really scott's this is blade runner the final cut uh i this is one of the only two films i really or three films actually that i think really scott does a really good job with uh but i'm a big harrison ford fan and blade runner is one that i can go back and rewatch and um pick up different things i kind of wanted to have a tie with blade runner 2049 at this spot but nope i can't break the rules so um my next pick is 44, and that is The Breakfast Club from 1985. I know this will appear on another person's list uh, higher, but Breakfast Club is fantastic. I love the chemistry between all the actors here, and John Hughes is make, making great films, too. So I'll, I'll, I'll let uh, another per, the other person elaborate a little bit more. Uh, number 42, what is this? 43 is going to be 1971's Kubrick film, A Clockwork Orange. Uh, I really didn't like this film the first time I watched it, but I actually, after I watched more of this Kubrick, uh, this style of films, I actually really appreciate this movie a ton. I really like this. Martin McDowell is, uh, Malcolm McDowell, sorry, is fantastic. I really enjoy this, this film a lot, even though it's uh, kind of gross at times. So uh, number 42, I have Scorsese's Taxi Driver from 1976. You guys just did deep dive last year, so definitely check a listen to that. But I, De Niro in here is fantastic. Young Jodie Foster is amazing. I, I really enjoy it. You talking to me? Uh, and then my last pick of this round is 19, um, number 41 is 1921's Charlie Chaplin film, The Kid. I This is my favorite Chaplin film. I was immediately invested in this world here, and I immediately skyrocketed up my list and the more i thought about it the more it kind of affected me and there's a lot of great themes and elements that still hold true today 
as they did back then. So the kid is my 41. All right. Round, round us all out. 50 to 41. 50, Halloween. 49, Whiplash. 48, The Godfather. 47, City Lights. 46, On the Waterfront. 45, Blade Runner to the Final Cut. 44, The Breakfast Club. 43, Clockwork Orange. 42, Taxi Driver. And 41, The Kid. So if I remember right, you said you hadn't seen any Charlie Chaplin before we did our 100th anniversary review of The Kid earlier this year, right? I actually had watched... No, no, I watched um, Modern Times first that oh, was my okay. first one i watched a while ago and then we then we did uh you guys did city lights too right nope no no okay then i started watching some on hbo max so i think really the jo joker the walking phoenix version kind of inspired me to watch modern times i was like i gotta watch what that they're watching on the screen there too ah. and then i kind of slowly went into it so that's how i my, my entry into chaplin so uh three of the four films that i've watched of his so far have made appearances on my list the other one, the circus, which is good, not nearly as uh, top 100 worthy for me. Sure. It's a really good group of 10 movies. Like, I, I mean, I love all those movies. I, I prefer the David Gordon Green Halloween to the original, but I mean, the, yeah. the original is a classic and I have no problems with that on there either. Yeah. I'm surprised Whiplash is as low as it is because I know you love that movie. And I yeah, think I've some people to be your number two. Yeah, if yeah, someone had a predictor <laughs> in the top 10, I knew that. Yeah, it, it probably could go higher. It's definitely one of those one that it, excitement level and performance. I do. It probably is low. It probably is low. Another in another eight years when we do the, the next time, probably be higher. <laughs> we'll see. I've had a similar. Uh, I've had a similar reaction to Clockwork Orange as you too. Uh, the first time I watched it, I I hated it, and I haven't really gone back to revisit it yet. But to go mm -hmm. from not liking it to being number forty three of all time is impressive. So I may need to go back and revisit now. Well, there's another Kubrick film that maybe I have similar feelings for that appears a lot higher later. Oh, so. Okay. All right. I, I think if we were ever to deep dive a 50s movie on the waterfront would be very likely candid. Yeah. I, I would love, there's a lot of stuff to unpack with that movie. And that, I, that I, is, I love your choice. Yeah, that's really good. That's really one of my good. biggest blind spots is on the waterfront. Never that seen was it. on there my previous go. top 100. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's not on my top 100, but it's a movie I, I greatly admire. And uh, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that, it's represented on someone's list. And like you said, the Criterion version of the On the Waterfront actually has, if you go into the, 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 the special features, like Zach said, there, there's so much to unpack there too. So definitely check it out if you, if you like that movie. So, All right. That means it's my turn. 50 to 41. So uh, while Adam was talking, I may have uh, ran to my movie shelves behind me and and grab them all i was inspired by his props so uh you're gonna see some props here because i realized eight out of the ten movies on my 50 to 41 i own so uh here we go uh number 50 is actually one i don't own it's one that was kind of controversial whether or not it could be considered on this list or not it is oj made in america um it is yeah Technically, is it a movie? I mean, it was shown in theaters, so I guess technically, yes, it is. But um, it, it's more—it's more likely seen in episodes. But it is—it is brilliant, brilliant filmmaking, brilliant storytelling, and and telling all all facets of of the story of OJ and uh, and some stuff in there that just the underlying stuff I, I found fascinating and just brilliant, brilliant filmmaking there. Uh, number 49 from 2017, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. There you go. There you go. There we go. 
uh, I mean, Martin McDonough, Francis McDormand, Sam Rockwell, Woody Harrelson. It's a brilliant movie. Uh, it's one of the few times I, I have seen Adam and Todd, Adam and I went and saw this all together and we all left there with, this, with like the same same thought that this movie was just brilliant. Uh, so smart, so funny, so witty, yet so poignant in how it tells the story. Um, and everyone said it was like the new Fargo in a lot of ways because it told the, it kind of told a story in a similar way the Coens would. And it was kind of this murder mystery. Speaking of that, number 48 is from 1996. Fargo. There you go. Even though this is the one time we can put it on a list. So I had to put it on the list. <laughs> it's brilliant. I mean, it's Fargo. What what else can you say? It, it Francis McDormand, the best she's, I mean, possibly the best she's ever been. We have that debate often, especially now after Nomadland. But uh, she's just awesome in, in that. And the quirky world that he's, that the Coens are able to create in that movie is amazing. Number 47 from 2013, one of those out of respect, you have to have it on your list for how I'm, uh, it, it's, it needs to go down as just an important movie. 2013's 12 Years a Slave. Uh, brilliant film, brilliant performances by all. Uh, it, and um, I remember when I first saw it, I was like, this is, this is something important. This is the Schindler's List for the, for the Civil War. And uh, it, it, it needs to, I feel like it hasn't really been remembered like that. Like it should have been like that instant classic, but it's good enough to be remembered in that way and needs to be uh, number 46 from 2007 directed by Florian Hinkle von Donnersmark. It is the lives of others. Um, this is a movie that as I was putting my list together, probably uh, fluctuated in its position the most, like it was really high up and then it was a really low. And now it kind of finished somewhere in the middle. It's a brilliant movie. It's a masterpiece of a movie. I need to watch it again. It's been a while since I've watched it, but the impact of the story of, of the um, of this uh, secret undercover guy who's listening in on conversations is just amazing, and and how how gripping and captivating it can be. Just having someone sit there and listen to conversations, it's amazing. Number forty five, another one I haven't seen in a while that I need to see again, and another Best Picture winner from nineteen eighty four. We have. Amadeus, Amadeus, um, brilliant performances, brilliant music. Uh, it, it's it, it's outstanding, an outstanding film. Like I said, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I remember the first time I watched it, just being completely captivated by F. Murray Abraham and Tom Hulse, uh, and and the the battles they have with each other in the in that film. Uh, number forty four on my list is a movie that when I first watched it, I thought like one of the greatest films of all time, masterpiece, amazingness, and it's fallen down a little since then, but I still have it on my list. Number 44 is from 2011. Another best picture winner, the artist. Uh, it, it, it's, it's still brilliant. And, and the performances they're able to get in making this modern day silent film about the silent era. It's, I, I still love it. It's charming. It's, it's just brilliant what they were able to do with that. Uh, however, number 43 is uh, the better version of the artist that's singing in the rain, 1952. Um, I own that one, but it's downstairs. It's not in my in my room because the kids love watching it, too, because it is so universally appreciated. Uh, everyone can enjoy that movie on all sorts of different levels. It's fun. It's deep. It's it's amazing. My kids still like dance around on the floor and the make them make them laugh like sequence all the time. Uh, it, it's great. I, I love that movie. Um, 
even if the like Broadway melody part is completely out of context and ridiculous to even be a part of that film, it still works for some reason. So uh, I just, it, it's great. It's great. Number 42 is from 1957, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, a brilliant movie. Uh, Alec Guinness is amazing in this, uh, talking about uh, responsibility and duty and what you're, uh, how to be a leader. It um, And when being a leader takes can take things too far. Just amazing classic. Uh, I love that movie. It's one I do not own, but I would, I want to own that one. And number 41, the last one I'm going to talk about from 2009, Avatar. Uh, I, it's one that I loved when I first watched it. It's been a while since I've watched it. I will be watching it again, I'm sure, very soon once the sequels finally start coming out. Uh, but it, it's, it, it just this spectacle and this technical achievement that it was, and then telling such a heart, heart wrenching, heartwarming story along with it was just awesome. So there's my list. Number 50, OJ made in America. Number 49, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, number 48, Fargo. Number 47, 12 years of slave. Number 46, the lives of others. 45, Amadeus. 44, the artist. 43, singing in the rain. 42, the bridge on the river Kwai and 41 avatar. Lots of big Oscar movies there, Terry. There are. (laughs) I realize that there are a lot of big Oscar movies in that. In that. uh, In that. That's why he has them all. (laughs) That's exactly the only one that wasn't (laughs) on my Oscar shelf that I just grabbed was uh, the Lives of Others, which won the Oscar for foreign film. See, there we go. So, Terry, I'm assuming that the Hurt Locker is not in your top forty, but uh, were you upset when Avatar didn't win Best Picture? Um. Upset. Because you got no. four best pictures there. Avatar would have been the fifth best picture in your yeah. 40s range. I feel like in, in the the, uh, the jury of the popular opinion is that Avatar was the better movie than The Hurt Locker 11 years later, but 12 years later. But yeah, I, I had I, I had I had Avatar number one of that year. Um, Hurt Locker is number 63 on this list for me. So oh, okay. it's not like it was a huge misjustice that that avatar lost i think hurt locker is a brilliant film as well um but uh yeah yeah probably also, more upset that fargo lost to english patient i also like your uh dvd blu-ray thing i'm gonna do that next time okay okay yeah, I, I don't know sh- how well i can do online. it for the next one but I'll, I'll i'll see what i can do all right todd okay my number 50 is kill bill volume one which this oh. is the first time I've ever separated the Kill Bills before, and I always assumed like Kill Bill Volume Two was going to be really high, and Kill Bill Volume One was going to be outside my top hundred. But when I thought about it, really, I there are enough points in Kill Bill Volume One that I consider to be the most iconic Tarantino things that it still had to be on the list. I mean, I still love every bit of the setup, and the it has a twist ending that is was completely just like fabricated at the last minute, and it's it's a brilliant twist ending. Uh, my number forty nine is one of my top rated best picture winners it is rebecca the alfred hitchcock movie which is uh really something that hitchcock didn't explore very much it was like a really gothic kind of feel to the movie i mean the the remake that they made like last year was kind of garbage but um the original the mystery of it all the performances by john fontaine and Laurence olivier just you know all-timers my number 48 i have on golden pond which I consider yes. basically a perfect movie. And we 
we talked about it probably longer than we were planning on on the podcast when Terry reviewed it. It's um, it's just one of those movies that I mean, it just sounds the the dialogue in the movie sounds like uh, unlike any other movie, and it's um, yeah, it, it's basically perfect. My number forty-seven is by far Spielberg's best movie, Catch Me If You Can, which is in my top ten most watched movies of all time. It's about Frank William Abagnale, the uh, the master counterfeiter, manipulator, scammer. He is. Uh, it's Leo doing what we have come to expect Leo to do in the last 20 years, but it was the first time that he really did it. And it, I mean, that, that movie is just brilliant in, in every way. Number 46 is Battle Royale, which is the as dark of a comedy, like social commentary, like horror thriller thing as you could ever imagine. It, I mean, the, the sequel, not as much, but Battle Royale is probably the best movie that's ever been uh, made in Japan. Uh, my number 45 is In the Bedroom. Uh, which is another one that I consider basically a perfect movie. It's one that you can't watch as much because it is really bleak and the the performances are really re like I mean they are really sharp and but uh, yeah in the bedroom it's it, it, it's a yeah just a, one of the greats. And number forty four I also have Fargo. Uh, Terry just talked about it. I mean he said everything. It's it's the Coens doing their thing and they're at the absolute height of their powers. Uh, number forty three I have Citizen Kane. And when you're making one of these lists, like you gotta have a hybrid of your your favorite movies to watch and your you know and the movies you consider the best. Like Citizen Kane is something that you could admire, you can study. It's not necessarily something you would necessarily want to watch all the time, but it, I mean it is fascinating. Number forty-two, I guess a little similar in that way is There Will Be Blood, which may be the Citizen Kane of our of our generation. It's uh, it's uh, I mean Daniel Day Lewis and Paul Dano absolutely tearing the screen up and Paul Thomas Anderson doing what I consider probably his, uh, his ultimate masterpiece. And my number 41 is the best documentary ever made hoop dreams. We've talked about it on the podcast before. It's, it's a, uh, it's a, Steve James is a genius. He has an idea and that the idea becomes something else. And then it morphs into an ultimate study of something entirely different. And hoop dreams is the best, the best, probably the best sports movie ever. It's the best. Yeah, the best documentary ever. All right. So re recap is 50 to 41. Number 50, Kibble Volume 1, 49, Rebecca, 48, On Golden Pond, 47, Catch Me If You Can, 46, Battle Royale, 45, In the Bedroom, 44, Fargo, 43, Citizen Kane, 42, There Will Be Blood, and 41 is Hoop Dreams. All right. Some really I, good films in there. I have three immediate reactions. The first Kill Bill Volume 1, when I first watched the Kill Bill movies, I liked Kill Bill Volume 1 so much more than Kill Bill Volume 2. Because of, it's like the perfect setup for the sequel of like any movie of all time. And and just the way it sets up this, this great final act uh, was just brilliant. So much so that I thought the final act didn't necessarily pay off all the setup. But as I've as I've watched it more and, and thought about it more, it, it I mean the, the setup is nothing unless the final act lands it and it does. So uh, so I, I think you have Kill Bill Volume One a little low. Uh, and then another thing uh, I love they have on Golden Pond. That's probably the most recent movie that I've seen. Well, that wasn't the one of them. Uh, but yeah, that one. Uh, Catch me if you can. I love Catch me if you can. But to say it is by far Spielberg's best. When he made something like Schindler's List, 
is or the post or or, oh, or yes, the post. I mean, obviously, it that's Duel. kind of insane. That is kind of insane. Um, I don't have Catch Me If You Can on my list. It was close. I thought about it, but to say it's by far his best, it, you're out of your mind. It's your only Spielberg movie on the list, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. I mean, Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan would be in the next 100, probably. But yeah, Catch Me If You Can, it's, I mean, it is him at the height of his, like, making important movie powers and w- as well as morphing that with his entertainment value, which those other movies don't necessarily do. It's also like a quintess, maybe the most quintessentially Spielberg movie. I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll give you that. Like, it, it defines who he is. It does stick out, though, in the way that you were calling me out for having Castaway kind of stick out on my list because those other <laughs> yeah. movies on your list are pretty much all justifiable. I mean, you really can't, you know, say anything demeaning about In the Bedroom or on Golden Pond. Obviously, great, great movies. Catch Me If You Can sticks out a little bit there. I also heard recently that there was a Catch Me If You Can Broadway musical made that never really made it that big, but it's out there somewhere. Yeah. So. Uh, also, and then, oh, then the, I also the last have, one I oh. wanted to mention was uh, I. Terry has a lot of thoughts. Battle Royale. <laughs> I I I I'm, I should have had that on my list, but I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought you were going I, somewhere else with that comment. No, no. <laughs> that, was, that was that was my comment. I should have had it on my list, and I didn't. There we go. Uh, yeah, I think three or four of those movies, Todd, appeared on my list. So uh, great minds think like there's some homework to be done, obviously. And I have three Spielberg movies still coming up on my top whatever top forty. So, yeah, there we go. So, not catch me. Looking forward. Yeah, it's a good one. Close, (laughs) close to making it, but not quite. So, comparing "There Will Be Blood" to "Citizen Kane," calling it the "Citizen Kane" of our generation, one of the five smartest things you've ever said. That's that's (laughs) a great, great comparison, and I feel the exact same way about both those movies. Very hard to watch, but uh, you can't you cannot deny their their brilliance. And when we do our deep dive of There Will Be Blood next year, we should somehow do some category where we compare it to Citizen King. Because I, like I think it. I think thematically, there are a lot of comparisons there. Rosebuds and milkshakes. Mm-hmm. Rosebuds How many people had that on their top alleys. 100? <clears throat> How many ha- people had what? There Will Be Blood on their top 100. I, didn't I know either. I did. Um, I didn't. Let's see here. I have, I've only I have seen all it this once. information. I saw it in the and I haven't seen enough. It. I haven't seen there, it. Since. It is on. It is on two lists. There will be blood. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Todd and myself. Yeah, there we go. Yep, yep, yep. All right, there we go. So that is our fifty to forty-one. Tune back in next week, and you'll hear uh, forty to thirty-one. Now it's time to move on, and it's time for Adam to move on, and finally go answer that phone call. Oh yeah, it's possible. <laughs> It's my freaking work phone. It's, I know it's in my boss. It's the people. Hey, where's this toilet located? I, I'm off. Come on. It's in the bathroom, you moron. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> All right. It is time for our featured reviews this week. As you can see, Adam is left, but that's okay. If you are watching, if you aren't watching, then you won't hear Adam's voice anymore. He can only stick around for the first part of the podcast. Or his phone. Or, or his phone. Uh, and so we, uh, we are not reviewing anything that came out this week, uh, because there was a lot of stuff that came out last week and we didn't review anything last week and we really wanted to talk about it. So we're going to start by talking about 
the green knight uh from david lowry starring dev patel zach start us out with this one what is the green knight all about and what did you think okay so the green knight is the latest film by david lowry um, I've never given thumbs up to a David Lowry film, by the way. Uh, I, I, he's a director who I admire. I think he's very talented, but uh, his films, Pete's Dragon, The Old Man, The Gun, and A Ghost Story didn't really work for me, even though A Ghost Story is one of the most polarizing, strange film experiences I've ever had. I, I think it is yes. kind of a masterpiece, but I can't give it thumbs up. I, maybe... You haven't seen Nathan Body Saints? No, I've never seen that. Oh, that's I'm, I'm sure that's good. I'm, I'm sure that's good. Anyway, the guy has undeniable talent, and this is an A24 production, so I went in with very high expectations for it. The trailers, I thought, looked great. Um, it is a, I guess, kind of loose adaptation of a medieval poem called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Now, Terry was not an English major at Concordia University RIP, but I no. was, and I took Dr. Reverend Daniel Lucas Edison Thomas Wright's <laughs> class on British literature, which I believe uh, Cassie also took. And we actually had to read Sir Gawain in The Green Knight. And the first thing I want to say is bravo to David Lowry for making a movie that uh, undergraduate English majors from across the country can now watch and not actually have to read the poem and sound intelligent in class discussing, because this would have been very helpful uh, circa 2005 for me. Anyway, uh, The Green Knight tells the story in Arthurian times of a knight-ish, I think, uh, named Gawain, although in this movie, I think his name is Garwin. He's played by Dev Patel. And he's, I'm calling him a knight-ish because he's not really a knight. He's the nephew of King Arthur. But at the beginning of the movie, he's just kind of this, like, guy who, like, hangs around. He's living with his parents. And he's sort of a, I don't know, he's uh, he's kind of slovenly. He's kind of, um, he, he's sort of immature in a way. Um, maybe he's meant to be, like, a medieval reflection of 20-ish uh, males in the 21st century. I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, at the beginning of the movie, he is summoned by his uncle, King Arthur. And uh, King Arthur really likes him. Uh, he goes on Christmas Day to the round table, and they are all befriended, or at least maybe maybe um, encountering the Green Knight, who comes in and challenges any knight in Arthur's round table to a duel. And uh, whoever strikes a blow on the Green Knight um, is uh, bequeathed, basically, to return one year later so that the Green Knight will return exactly the strike that the knight gives, uh, or that the knight gives the Green Knight. Uh, boy, I'm making this sound confu more confusing than it is. Anyway, the bottom line is, uh, Sir Gawain actually uh, is able to do some damage to the Green Knight. And so um, basically the movie jumps a year forward and Sir Gawain knows that he has to go back uh, to confront the Green Knight to receive the same treatment that he gave uh, the Knight, the Green Knight back in the day. And so the movie is a sort of episodic kind of rolling adventure um, that feels, I, I gotta say, it feels a little Monty Python-like at times because Sir uh, Gerwin uh, encounters all these people along the way. I'm just gonna call him Sir Gawain. That's that's how I know him, is Sir Gawain. Um, and uh, he encounters, let's see, uh, a fox that talks. He encounters some thieves. He encounters a married couple with some very questionable motives along the way. He encounters this lady who has to recover her head uh, in, the, in the water. Some pretty strange, kind of trippy medieval adventures before he ultimately encounters the Green Knight. Um, David Lowry is, I think, a, a tremendous artist. I mean, you know, I haven't loved his movies, but he's always been uh, keen on production design and detail. This is a movie that is, 
I've, I've read in interviews, he talked about how actually the pandemic, because it was delayed its release, he actually had more time to edit it. I think one of the flaws in this movie is that David Lowry is the editor. Um, we, we've seen this before when directors edit their movies. I think this movie gets a little muddled in the middle. I get that there's um, a lot of adventures that Sir Gawain has, but uh, I feel like the movie kind of slows down. And for a movie about a knight going on an adventure, I feel like it needs a little bit more of like a B12 shot at around, you know, the, the 70 minute mark or so. Uh, but the movie does speed up a little bit more toward the end. And it gets a lot more energy. And the final encounter with the Green Knight is really interesting and tremendous. And um, I got to say, I kind of knew the direction that I, I figured the direction that the last 15 minutes was going because you've seen it in other movies before. But I really liked it. And what I really admire about the movie, too, is that, look, the, the, the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is, is from, you know, the what, the 1400s, 1500s, long time ago, maybe even before. I'm sorry, I don't know the exact dates. What I like that David Lowry has done is he's basically transplanted this epic medieval poem and made it tangible and relatable and palatable for modern audiences. These old English medieval poems were about things like chivalry, about chastity, about what a knight should be. How are audiences in the 21st century supposed to understand that? So I really give kudos to, to, to David Lowry for making this movie actually really interesting and, and keeping the spirit of what the poem was trying to um, generate and uh, the, the spirit in which it was written, the spirit in which a lot of these medieval folk poems were written. Um, you know, I think there's kind of two tendencies with Arthurian movies. On the one hand, you can go kind of big budget, bloated production, big production epic, like the King Arthur's of the world and that guy Richie, Richie movie in Excalibur. The other direction is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This is a movie that has a good balance of the two. It's definitely not a comedy, although there are some light moments in it, but it's not over the top and bloated. It feels very personal and also a little bit trippy at times, which I really kind of admire. There are some plot holes in it. But overall, I give this movie three and a half stars. It was a pretty enjoyable experience. I like when modern filmmakers are able to take relics from the past and make them relevant to audiences today. And certainly with Deb Patel's performance as this knight who really needs to kind of grow up, which is also a theme in a lot of Lowry's work. Um, I think modern audiences find a lot of resonance in this story. So solid movie. Really enjoyed my time watching it. All right. Three and a half stars from Zach. Todd, how about you? Uh... I might be a tick down from him, but I, I did enjoy the movie too. I, I think Dev Patel is awesome in this. Like it, he has come a long yeah. way since Slumdog Millionaire. He looks heroic and almost like godlike. Like that scene where that unbroken shot where he's like on the horse riding toward the camera, it just looks like a portrait. And it's just kind of mesmerizing to just watch him just sit there on the horse. I mean, he's going to be a superhero at some point. He's going to be like the Green Lantern or something. At some point, I mean, he's going to get these offers because he is his posture and the sound of his voice just sound different than it ever has, and he's he's awesome. But the the craftsmanship of the movie is what I find most impressive. Like the cinematography should be nominated for an Oscar. Like every sequence, I feel like is like this extended like video game cutscene kind of thing. It's like leading up to a final battle, like it's a medieval Metal Gear or something like that. But it, it everything looks almost too too good to be real but it's just like gorgeous scenery in ireland and it's, it's amazing and the sound design i feel like also is just terrifying like the sound of him like picking up that skull or the beheading sounds like they are just loud and like just really like brutal sounds and um i could see that being an oscar thing as well i like pretty much all the actors like barry keegan is just too perfect i didn't even realize it was him like all the actors are just so immersed in the roles that uh uh you because they believe in the material but for me, like Arthurian tales and stuff like this is about the least appealing setting for any movie. Like it's similar to like some Shakespeare stuff or like royalty dramas. It's just not really something that I get into. So 
even the movie and the staging of the movie is really good. I, I still am just sort of not completely into it. Uh, but but it's, it's the imagination of David Lowry and his direction that, that really keeps it flowing, even though it's really just not my thing. But I, I feel like it, it went into, into territory that was almost like Guillermo del Toro-ish, like in, in the in the middle sections. Mm, yeah. yeah. But there was a little bit too much lighthouse in there as well. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I kind of want to watch it again. I mean, I feel I could feel like I could get a little bit more into it now that I know the story. But I mean, it, I, I can't really give it higher than three stars right now, but I, I could see it going up over time. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I've got it at three stars as well. Thrice approved for the Green Knight. Hey, um, here we go. And yeah, I'm kind of in a similar spot. Uh, I thought it was it was a, a fascinating story. I had not read it. I didn't really know anything about this story uh, going into it, and uh, and it was it was fun to watch. And it it felt it felt kind of like uh, you guys said said Monty Python. I I thought more like like the odyssey or cold mountain or something something along those lines where it's it's someone's on a journey and oh now we're gonna see the chapter where they're with this person and then we're gonna see the chapter where we're there with this person uh i think what ties it all together though is the score i felt like the score just kind of had this hypnotic uh vibe to it that just pulled you in and just made you just like lose yourself in this story and this journey that he's on and i i thought that was that was just amazing. Yeah, Dev Patel is great. Uh, you say superhero. I want to see him be the next James Bond. That's where I'm at with Dev Patel. I think he could pull it off, and I think it would be a lot of fun. Um, and I think a movie like this kind of shows the kind of gravitas he can have to pull off something like that. Uh, and and the, of all the minor characters, the one that I'll, I'll point out, uh, Lady Winifred, who is looking for her head, played by Aaron Kellyman, who you guys don't know. She's one of the main characters in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So it was kind of cool to see her pop up in something else. She was she's really good in that show. And uh, and she was good in just a real small, small part here. But yeah, three stars for me. Yeah, I think the only reason I'm, I'm a little higher on this movie is I think this was a very difficult and ambitious project. And at this point, when I watch newer movies, I give I tend to give a filmmaker more credit, even even if the final product isn't perfect. And I agree with Todd's comment that this movie probably deserves a second viewing because there was a lot of stuff that went over my head too. But just the scale and the scope and the audacity to translate something that old into something that Lowry thought audiences would find powerful and you know intriguing um, and resonant. I, I give props to the guy. I mean, the guy, his next movie is going to be Peter Pan, right? I mean, how easy a sell is that to the studio producer? Let's make another freaking Peter Pan movie. Well, now, I, 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 Dragon, and that, and then that right. was a big successful movie too. So, I mean, listen, I I don't want to see another Peter Pan movie. I want to see a movie that has the audacity to be something different, something unique. And uh, this movie feels very lived in, and I feel like it's almost like a Barry Lyndon for the 2020s. Like it's a movie that I think might, might go misunderstood for a while, but from a cinematic standpoint is really spectacular. And uh, I, I think we'll age well with time. Well, and you know, the source material too, and we don't, so that, that might be why you have a little bit more appreciation for the, for the feat that was done here. I mean, I pretended I knew the source material, you know, 16 years ago, <laughs> I wouldn't call myself an expert at it. <laughs> You you have some familiarity with. The I believe I got program. an A minus in that class, but it was not not for my gr gr Sir Gawain uh, <laughs> contributions to that conversation. Uh, how how far would you have been downgraded if 
Dr. Wright heard you call him Garwin instead of Gwen. Hey, I that's that, <laughs> that's David Lauer. They chose to go with Garwin. I don't know. Garwin to me sounds like a GPS service or something. I don't know. I think that's, that's what I thought the whole time too. Yeah. Um, that's just their accents, I think. Yeah, I think I think it was. All right. So that's the Green Knight. Thrice approved. It is still in theaters. Check it out while you can. Moving on to another movie that came out last week, and that is Stillwater, uh, brought to us by Tom McCarthy, uh, the uh, Oscar-winning director and filmmaker behind Spotlight. Uh, I'm going to talk about this one first. So, uh, yeah, so Tom McCarthy wrote and directed this, starring Matt Damon and Abigail Breslin and Camille Cotin. Uh, And this is a story of... uh, of kind of a Matt Damon plays Bill, this kind of redneck uh, construction worker, oil driller guy from Oklahoma that ends up uh, going to France to visit his daughter who was studying abroad, but is now in prison convicted of murder of her roommate. And uh, she has been, uh, been saying she's been innocent the entire time. And he decides to take it upon himself to try and help find uh, who actually did this so that she could go free. This movie, uh, I, I've always appreciated Tom McCarthy, and I've always loved his work. And I think he does a really amazing job here as well. I, I think uh, this movie kind of morphs halfway through in a way you don't necessarily expect. And uh, it it really works, where the first half of it feels like this uh, this just kind of rogue vigilante as as matt damon's character is is going across marseille trying to solve a crime on his own because the the uh police and the lawyers and the judges won't help him at all and then something happens and it goes in a direction you're not really thinking that will go and it goes into more of like a family drama which is really strange but it works and it, it just pulls out the depth of these characters that it that it's building, especially the relationship between Matt Damon and this little girl named Maya that he uh, that he meets along the way. Um, Matt Damon gives an incredible performance, disappears into this role more than almost you could say he's ever done before. Uh, Abigail Breslin, uh, you might say this is like her first great adult performance. Uh, I think she did, gives a, an amazing performance as well. And uh, and the ending, I, it is is something I know that has been very controversial, uh, but I think I think it works, and I think it it's uh, it's a very powerful ending, and uh, and just a really moving movie. I'm giving it three and a half stars. Uh, I I really really enjoyed Stillwater, um, even though. It had nothing to do with a small-time '70s band uh, from Troy, Michigan, in uh, the harsh face of stardom. But um, but it's still an amazing movie, and uh, and I really liked it. All right, we're gonna go to Zach next. I think you should go to Todd next. Todd next. Todd next. Okay. Um. <laughs> So, I mean, I think the movie really works for most of it. Like, the last last half hour, I think, is really bad, which is, is similar to Nothing But The Truth. Like, it takes enough away from the movie to, to keep it from being a thumbs-up movie. 
because it just kind of betrays you in a way that I I, I really don't appreciate, I guess. Uh, uh, but Matt Damon is fantastic, but I think it's because he's Matt Damon. Like, I don't think if it was if it was somebody else we'd never heard of, I don't think we would think twice about the performance because there's no real emotional ups and downs and there nothing necessarily happens or showy with the character, but he is so like that character. Like he disappears. And I, I mean, I know a lot of people like that. I, I work with people like that and that is how they are. Like he, he, it's like eerie how actually well he played that role. And, but the, the thing, I wasn't necessarily interested in the mystery of it all. And I, I like the scenes with him and the French woman uh, played by Camille Cotton and, and her daughter I, it doesn't play with the fish out of water stuff as much as I thought it would, which is, uh, it feels mostly genuine. And I could probably attribute that to the fact that he's got two really accomplished French writers making it not just a movie set in France by Americans who don't really understand what they're doing. But, and I also think Abigail Breslin is really good. That's her second best performance after My Sister's Keeper. And these are the kind of roles that she needs as an actress. Like this is, it's the same with Thomas and Mackenzie. They look like 25 year old children. And that's that's a problem because they can never get the adult roles. And she is really good in this and, the, and hopefully a, a sign of things to come. Because she really, she see, steals several scenes from Matt Damon. And I mean, there isn't really necessarily anything wrong with the movie other than the, the train wreck of an ending. Like, it kind of blows by at 140 minutes. It's just a ridiculousness and convenience, the last act that, that kind of goes off the rails. But what I don't understand is why all the reviewers that I've I, I've seen are, are making it something else. Like, it, this movie is about is about the character and it's a character study. It's not about what they're making it about. Like they're making it like they're saying it's about this like one throwaway line about who he would have voted for. And that's, if that is what you think the movie's about, then you honestly should be fired. Cause that is, that is as stupid as calling three billboards a racist movie because it has a racist character in it, which maybe someone on this podcast did. But like, <laughs> those, like those liberal critics are too dumb and close minded to actually think a passing line is what the movie's about. But Either way, it's a two and a half star movie because of how bad the, the ending is. But uh, other than that, I really did enjoy it. And it's it's hard for me to actually sit through a 140 minute movie and not actually look at my watch. All right. So what did what was the star rating you just gave it? T- two and a half stars. Two and a half. Oh, okay. All right, Zach. That's what that's why we went to Todd. Yeah. Okay. So. Going into this movie, uh, I really didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know that Tom McCarthy directed it until Todd reminded me midway through the week. I thought it was going to be about some, you know, Matt Damon on like an oil rig or something like that. So I would recommend going into this movie with as little knowledge as possible. I didn't even know that it was drawing upon the Amanda Knox case. Uh, I think this movie has been embroiled in controversy because of the Amanda Knox thing. Apparently she tweeted out to Tom McCarthy. I think certainly there's been some talk about Matt Damon and his use of uh, uh, gay slurs this past week. Uh, It's kind of a distraction from the movie. First 10 minutes of this movie, I'm kind of thinking, okay, well, he's yeah, yeah he's definitely a, a roughneck. He's an oil rig worker. He, uh, he's a blue collar and he's in France. Okay, it's going to be kind of a culture clash thing. Is Matt Damon, has Matt Damon been good in a movie lately? I, I don't know if I can really believe this. Once I got past that point, because there are some critics that can't get past it, let's be honest. But once you get past it, because we're mature film goers, I think this is an incredible movie. It is my new number one of 2021. Wow. I think what this movie tries to do is so ambitious. Let's look. It tries to be three things, okay? And a lot of movies fail when it try, they try to be this ambitious. 
it tries to be a father-daughter drama. It tries to be a murder mystery. And it's also trying to be a movie about cultural interactions that is not, it's, it's a fish out of water, but I think in a lot more sophisticated and complex ways than what traditional movies are. Now, Todd, I want to go back to that line about where he says that he's not a Trump supporter. There are critics out there, two of whom I know we listen to, that trash the movie for that line. Oh, no, I that, think that's that is ridiculous. not normal. That, that, that is, is exactly what so many critics have said, which is why I think that is ridiculous. Stupid. His yeah. response to that line, which I, you know, we don't need to go into, is a perfect response. If he had had affirmed without a doubt that he was a Trump supporter, then this movie would become a Trump supporter redemption story, which it is not. That is not the uh, agenda of this filmmaker. I do believe this movie is a left-wing film, but that's not the main agenda. It's, it's a movie that believes that there are differences in cultures. There are differences in belief systems, and there are differences in people's culpability and responsibility. But in the end, if you put in effort and time and sincerity into trying to communicate with people who maybe don't believe the same thing you believe, then maybe you could overcome those obstacles. It also does something that my favorite movies do, which is throws a character who is experiencing the worst time of his life. Okay, this guy is, is going through some horrible shit in his life with his daughter. His daughter is also going through terrible stuff. But through the struggle and through the hurdles and obstacles that he encounters, he's actually able to achieve a sort of transcendence and a compassion and empathy that he didn't have before, okay? I know that sounds like a certain Dustin Hoffman movie that I have in my top 10, but it, it, it is also in this movie too. This movie also, I think, go it, like Terry was saying, very unexpected directions. It becomes almost like The Pledge at one point, another movie that was in my top 100. It goes into directions that you don't expect. I think the three kind of arcs of this story balance themselves out perfectly. I was never bored for a minute of a movie that was two hours and 20 minutes. I was blown away by this movie. Uh, bravo, Tom McCarthy. Bravo, Matt Damon. This is by far Matt Damon's best work in a long, long time. And the critics that don't understand this movie, I, I feel bad for them. I feel bad that they're getting distracted by Matt Damon's plaid shirts and his hats. Because that's, that, that's such a skin-deep and superficial review of a movie that I think is very much sophisticated and complex in its treatment of very serious world, real world issues. And uh, I think it's kind of beautifully done. Like I said, it's nothing but the truth. I would agree with you if it, I didn't hate well, okay. the last 30 minutes. Can we talk a little, a little bit about the last 30 minutes? I mean, we don't have Spoiler to alert. necessarily too much spoilers. What, what didn't you like about it? I mean, it was, I mean, nothing about that was believable. Everything from the soccer game on, like how he, just like cold cock somebody in the middle of the street and then shoved him in the back of his, his vehicle. And that guy just magically didn't wake up until he got home. And when he got home, he was able to go do his thing and then like secure him in like a very complex basement. Like nothing about this is believable. This needed a like a mini series treatment to, to like an, an expansion of that to actually believe any of that. I thought it, it, just totally got, it just kind of went worse and worse. <laughs> it totally worked. And at that point, I, yeah. he wasn't even looking for him anymore. I, I mean, that, that, was, that, was what, that was the best part of it, is, is you just kind of traveled with him, and, and he's there, and he's just kind of doing his thing, and he looks over, he goes, holy crap. I mean, I mean that it, it was, yeah, it, it was completely 
Yeah. No, but it was how is how they handled it. I mean, yeah, he it was pure chance. You're saying it was unrealistic that he wouldn't have passed out or something, or 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 that that he. I think you're seeing the forest for the trees. Okay, I think that the, there are maybe details that you are stretch a little bit of believability, but they have to because the movie has to come back to the his motivation for being in Marseille in the first place. And I thought those scenes were were really well handled. Where I thought you were going was more the last 10 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Which I thought at first, I thought, well, you know, this seems, things seem to be going by really fast here. Okay. Like what this character is going, uh, is moving places very, very quickly relative to the speed at which the previous five years had happened. But the more I thought about it, the more I liked the ending because there have to be consequences for what the Matt Damon character does in this movie. And that, and alluding to what you were talking about at the beginning of what, what you were talking about, like there has to be some sort of payoff for the things that he commits in this movie. He can't just drop everything. Right. So in, in other words, uh, it wasn't what I was expecting. And I appreciate the filmmakers for, for doing that, but I don't think it tarnishes from what I think is a great movie. So Zach, it, it's your number one of 2021 What's your uh, rating on this? This is a four star movie for four me. Four stars, okay. Even even if there are, because I got to say also, like I didn't. This movie became a love story, right? I was dreading that. I my 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 heart was sinking a little bit when it became a love story. I was like, really? But it works. The filmmakers actually, I thought, made it work. I couldn't believe it. Um, when I thought this movie was going in the wrong direction, the filmmakers made it work. I kudos. I I I, I was kind of blown away by it. It doesn't have to be a perfect movie to be a riveting movie experience. And that's what this movie does. I think it makes you think. It makes you grow. It's like the Jim Valvano speech. It makes you cry. makes you laugh. makes you think. It does, uh, it does everything. It's a great, it was a great experience. And, I mean, Tom McCarthy, It's an Oscar-caliber screenplay. Yeah. It and, has well, to be Tom considered. McCarthy, so, so far, these are the movies he's made. He's, he's directed. The Station Agent, great film. The Visitor, great film. Win-win, great film. The Cobbler, I don't think it, it, it's it's <laughs> sticks out like it sticks uh, out like a sword. Can. Yeah, it kit it sticks out like crazy. But I think it gets crapped on more than it deserves because everyone expected it to be a Tom McCarthy movie. Spotlight, one best picture, and now Stillwater. And I mean, this guy when he makes a movie, it is it is incredible. And I, honestly. Just looking at it, I think Stillwater, I, it's almost a four-star movie. It might end up being one for me. It's the first, other than The Cobbler, it's the first one I haven't given four stars to. Um, so. Well, and I think credit also goes to the screenwriters, too. Thomas B Bidigain and Noe Debre, uh, one of them wrote the, A Prophet, which I know Todd's a big Yeah, yeah, they're, they're the jock, Adiard. Uh, they, they wrote Dupin, and yeah, they're, they're, the, they're his guys. I can't, I can't think of another movie that so perfectly blended like American style filmmaking with European style filmmaking. Like this movie feels like a perfect hybrid of both of those, which is maybe why audiences aren't responding to it as positively as, as we might think. But um, it has the kind of hard edge of a European movie, but it also has that focus on the character development and family issues that American movies tend to. I, I thought it was, I thought it was a beautiful mixture. All right, so we've got four stars, three and a half stars, two and a half stars. Stillwater is still in theaters, uh, and this is definitely one that you can have a conversation around. So, yeah, uh, even though I, and, yeah. I don't agree with Todd's uh, star rating, 
I understand his criticisms, though. Me too. You, Me too. You cannot under you cannot criticize the movie for this the thing with the Trump voting. That is a terrible criticism of this movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we're all basically in agreement, except I just yeah. I, that, I, I the, the ending bothers you more than it bothers yeah. us. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. To, I mean, it's a, a, a fairer criticism. And and the the comment about the Trump voting, I I felt when it came up too, for a foreigner to ask that question, it felt so organic. In that moment, it's like, all right, an American that looks like this and talks like this and acts like this, we have to ask. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it just feels, it just felt like such an organic moment too. I, I don't, I don't understand how you could possibly criticize that, um, and and or make that at all about what the movie's about. It's not about that at all. And stop making everything political, and everything doesn't have to be political. Okay, moving oh. on. It's now time for our deep dive. Uh, and uh, this is, like I said at the beginning, this is one of Todd's guilty pleasure movies. He's been waiting for this to be found uh, readily available free somewhere so we could actually start, we could talk about it. And it's now free on Netflix through the end of this month, I think I saw. So uh, catch it while you can. It is The Girl Next Door. Matt, she's a porn star, okay? Dude, what would JFK do? Don't mess this up. <laughs> Fine, fine, fine! Please, please, Matt! I just want to let you know you're better than this. Always know if the juice is worth the squeeze. From 2004, I believe, right? Yeah. So uh, the the uh, 17th anniversary edition of The Girl Next Door, it is not quite legal yet, which Emil Hirsch also wasn't. We'll, we may talk about that later. Um. Was he not? Oh. No, he wasn't. You, you did, oh, yeah. I'll, I I actually heard a story about that that I'll I'll share in a little while. So, um, the girl next door. Uh, this uh, this is yeah. This is one of Todd's favorite uh, comedies from the two thousands. Zach, I don't think you'd even seen it before. So uh, it was a first time watch for him. So we're gonna start with a little bit of trivia, and then we'll we'll I'm sure we'll be talking about this. Uh, are we talking about this? So. Uh, Zach and I both came up with some trivia questions for Todd, since he's the expert on this movie. I think I'd seen it once before, uh, before just, you know, this week watching it for this. So, uh, want to go back and forth on this, Zach? How many questions do you have? I have five or six, depending have, on how. I have five. So, okay. uh, so let's do this. So, uh, I'll go first. Sounds good. I'll go first. Okay. So Todd, my first question has five answers to it. So it's worth five <laughs> points if you want to call it that. Okay. Um, in the opening scene, what will always be remembered? Uh, the game at Fairfield. Um, all the great times at the Dirty Dozen, yeah. like the lacrosse championship, yeah, the math club, and uh, the uh, the senior prank. You got them all. You got yeah. them all. That, that that's impressive stuff right there that's impressive stuff all right zach uh what does it say on eli's hat it's like vivid video correct wow that's a good one that's a good one um what two things does alex say about i always got his name wrong sungyun's future what does he say about his future yeah 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 uh he could cure cancer and he could be the next Einstein. Yep. 
Well done. Well done. Zach? Uh, Two-part question. What are the vehicles that Matthew drives and whatever her name, Danielle drive? Ooh, great question. Uh, I think Todd gets tripped up with vehicles. I think I've asked a question. I know the answer to this question. I'm not a car guy. Well, uh, Danielle drives, it's like a, it's a white convertible something. It's like Mm. uh, VW. And uh, okay, we'll give you credit for it. VW bug, sure. Yeah, it's a bug. it's a beetle convertible, yeah. And uh, Maddie drives like a it's like a it's like a light blue like wagon thing. I I don't I don't know what kind of car it is. It's a gray Ford Taurus station wagon. So it was gray. Okay. It wasn't it a Taurus? I think it was a Taurus. Yes. Oh, yeah. One of those old school Tauruses that yep. every 90s kid at least knew one soccer mom that drove. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Um, uh, all right. I'm looking it up here. His name was Sam Nung. All right. Sam where, was, where was Sam Nung from? Uh, Cambodia. That's true. What were the movie posters in the film classroom? So you got much better questions. Uh, Alien. Mm-hmm. And oh God, see, I it's so dark in there. I, 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 I it's on the other wall. I, I, I don't know what it actually was. Rocky Horror Picture Show. Nice, nice, nice. Uh, who won the scholarship? Uh, well, he can't quote JFK anymore, can I, Ryan? Yep, <laughs> Ryan Winger. Ryan Winger, yep. I also had a question about the scholarship. What was the name of the scholarship? Or the name of the banquet? It was like the Sheridan Scholarship Banquet thing or something? Correct. Correct. Sheridan, yes. Sheridan Scholarship Banquet thing. Inexplicably, because that wasn't the name of the high school. I didn't understand that, but okay. Yeah, yeah, Westport High School. Yeah, I don't don't know where the... Probably the sponsor of the scholarship. All right, my last question is what is the slogan on the yearbook? I, I can't I can't picture it. <laughs> We've only just begun. Okay. Not some sexual double entendre like coming soon. <laughs> should have been. It, it should have been. That would have been that would have been appropriate. All right, Zach, what do you got? Okay, my last question is, where did Ebert rank this on his worst of 2004 list? And if it wasn't number one, <laughs> what was number one? Well, I, know, I mean, I know he hated it. Uh, I assume he probably had it in his top five. I'll say he had a number three. Correct. Good job. <laughs> and Now, okay, I'll give you a hint. Can you, his number one was actually a tie that year, which is significant. Ooh. Were they related? Uh, well, it's significant. It wasn't just an arbitrary tie. Well, because I know he loved like the second Garfield movie, right? He was a fan of both Garfield movies, I believe. Yes, <laughs> that definitely wasn't it. I, I have no idea. It was a tie between Troy and Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I, I I think uh, I think you nailed that one, Todd. Yeah, I know the movie. Pretty impressive. Bit. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and all uh, yeah, definitely uh, 
pun intended. So you love this movie. <laughs> Tell us about the girl next door and your experience and what you love about it. Uh, well, the girl next door is a, I don't know. I think it's clearly one of the best comedies of the two thousands and it's absolutely a two thousands movie. It's in that post American pie landscape, but it's way more heartfelt and sincere than that. Like Matthew Kidman is Emil Hirsch's character and he's, at a spot where he realizes his entire high school career, he hasn't really done anything, he doesn't have anything to look back on. So he but he meets this girl, Danielle, who is a former porn star, who is a uh, next door neighbor's niece. And uh, she starts to show him like how, how to take risks and how to, how to feel better about yourself sort of. And him and his buddies are like the two or three like least, popular kids in the school basically but uh they sort of have this have this uh, wave of momentum uh after meeting this girl and i don't know there's something about this movie i i watched this probably every single time i hung out with my buddy josh for a solid two years as long as we weren't at the movies we were watching this movie i've seen this movie <laughs> uh obscene amount of times and shout out to ackerman yes of course and um <laughs> It's uh, I, I mean, it's written by an Oscar nominated writer. And the, I mean, that that is not there's no mistaking that in this because there is way more heart this movie should have. It's like Jerry Maguire ish and like his quotability and like romantic naughtiness. And there, I mean, there, there's something in everybody and all three of the main characters, um, Klitz, Eli and Maddie. And um, I think Alicia Cuthbert is just so good in this. She's like Kate Hudson and almost famous kind of. She should be way more shallow than she is, but you actually feel her character. And it was just a huge movie for me in my teens and like early twenties. Like, I don't know. The soundtrack also is like loaded with like songs from that era that just take me back to that time. And I remember the the uh, the year ahead of me in high school. Like, uh, there were three guys that put as their senior quote in their yearbook, like, I am the first leg of the tripod, I am the second leg of the tripod, and I'm the third leg of the tripod. And I had no idea what they meant until I actually saw the movie. I was like, wow, that's so cool. I mean, I don't necessarily, I mean, it's kind of stupid now in retrospect, but at the time, like, that, that is exactly the crowd that's playing to, like, your late teens, and th this is the perfect movie for that kind of thing. And I, I still, like, I watched it, I could quote it to myself when I was watching it. And, um, yeah, it's just a great, and it, it misunderstood comedy probably at the time i think it's had a resurgence in, in recent years um yeah it's yeah it's one of my favorite comedies all right i have to ask you which three said that it was uh nate yoder aj johnson and tim peterson of course oh man wouldn't that make Ab it a absolutely quadrupod? of course it was of that was only three was. but weren't you part a part of that no that was a year ahead oh. of me I, oh. I, I hadn't even seen it when I was a junior. I, wow. I wouldn't that, have been old enough. That's amazing. That's amazing. All right. Zach, first time watch for you. What did you think of The Girl Next Door? Yeah, I mean, obviously I'd avoided this movie for a long time because Ebert passionately hated it. Um, he actually gave it a lower star rating than Alexander or Troy. So it's sort of inexplicable. Maybe he found, <laughs> maybe he watched it again and liked it a little more. I don't know. Um, so I stayed away from it for a long time. Watching it last night, it was an interesting experience. Um, so this is a very 2004 movie. It's a movie that I don't think could ever get made today. It's very dated. 
And yet there are some dated movies that feel charming in a way. Uh, it's hard to not think of, actually, I mean, this director, I think is very cinematically trained. I'll, I'll put it at the, I actually think this movie is fairly well directed. Uh, he does some kind of interesting things. He, he loves the cross dissolve. Okay, maybe he got that from Scorsese or something, but the, there's almost no like static shot that lasts in this, at least in the first 30 minutes for like longer than four seconds. So the camera's always moving. A lot of different angles, which I, I you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, the first 10 minutes I was thinking, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. Uh, I gotta be honest, uh, with the horrible jocks and the, oh, it was awful. I will say though, um, I think Emil Hirsch is interesting. I know Todd's been a big fan of Emil Hirsch throughout the years. I can see what's appealing about Emil Hirsch. He's got this sort of serious press. He's like a, he's a 2000s, you know, young Sean Penn. Um, he, he has a seriousness and a focus about him. I don't understand how he could be so unpopular despite the fact that he's apparently student body president as well. Um, that's something that I think the movie gets really wrong. Uh, but I do have to say the scenes with him and Danielle, as they first start to get to know each other are charming. Uh, this movie, there was a point in this movie that I was thinking, well, you know, th this is sort of an interesting relationship. Uh, yeah, obviously we know she's a porn star. He doesn't know that yet. He's a little underage. She's a very vague age. I'm kind of curious to see where this movie goes. And I think if I were to, to fault this movie, I don't want to be moralistic like Ebert because I think his, his review is, is very much how can you have a high schooler getting involved with parts? Yeah, that, no, I, that's not really my flaw with the movie. What, what I don't like about the movie is that I never got a sense of why Matthew and Danielle were in love with each other. It never, they didn't spend enough time on screen to develop why there was such a compatible and passionate relationship, particularly from the Danielle side. I guess the only explanation is that, that she's so eager to get out of the porn world that she maybe idealizes Matthew in that way and the life that she would have with him. But I never bought it. I, there's only really two scenes that establish their relationship and they're cute scenes, but the extent to which these characters go in this movie for each other um, is not reflected in the screen time that, that we get at the beginning to establish their relationship. The other big problem that I have with this movie is Timothy Oliphant. I think he is such a distraction in this movie. I don't find him really funny at all. He's like a young Bill Paxton. Um, you know, oh, good call. It, it's like he belongs in a different movie, and I get that. But what I, what I don't like about him is that I feel like for all the lines and dialogue that he has, he has more speaking lines in this movie than Alicia Cuthbert. He has to. Why doesn't the screenwriter spend more time on the relationship instead of this goofy side character who's like a mixture of Bill Paxton and a little bit of Ray Liotta and something wild, which is also very much an inspiration for this movie, along with Risky Business. Uh, I just didn't I, I didn't find the character that interesting. And I felt like uh, the, the screenwriters were too afraid to give Alicia Cuthbert any sort of um, personality. So that was a wasted opportunity. It goes on way too long. And uh, it's extremely homophobic, sexist, and has a lot of white privilege, and uh, it doesn't age well. However, I'm not as I'm not as horrified as Ebert was about it. It's 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 a two star movie that I can understand Todd having a lot of love for because it's been a part of his life for so long. <laughs> um, but ew, yikes, man. <laughs> I, I don't know. It, uh, we'll see where this conversation goes. 
Yeah, I think one of the things I thought of as I was watching, I, like I said, I watched it once. When Todd and I watched it, you know, at one point we got the DVD and watched it. And I, I hadn't seen it in years and years and years. And watching it, I think when did I watching it this week, the first thing that stood out to me is this. So many things in this just did not age well. And there are some there are some comedies from that time period that age fine. This is not necessarily one of them, but some of the stuff that that holds true about this, it is it is a raunchy comedy with a lot of heart, which is something you don't necessarily see. Um and uh and I mean it could have it could have been a different movie. I, I see what you're looking at, Zach. It could have been a completely different movie if Timothy Oliphant was not in there. If that character was not there. Um, he doesn't show up until like an hour into the movie, though. That's true, too. Yeah, I, I, I'd forgotten how long it took for, for him to show up because when I think about this movie, he's like one of the first things you think about is is him coming in and saying that Maddie's the tits and all this stuff. But um, <laughs> but uh, I think... But it's... it. Um, he he just dominates the second half of this movie and and changes changes the dynamic of the movie into this completely ridiculous raunchy comedy when it could have been something that would what is would have been more of like a like a teen romance comedy and it has the makings of being that but then it goes kind of more of the raunchy comedy and then tries to come back to the to the romance um I don't know. I give it two and a half stars. I'm going to, I'll, I'll hold to that. That was what I gave it originally. That's what I'll stick to. Um, but uh, I mean, it, it is fun. And once you get past, if you can get past the dated stuff, you can have a lot of fun with this movie and the payoff on at the end. I mean, it's way too convenient and everything and it all works out. But I mean, in a, in a crazy comedy like this, that's how it has to happen. And I think it, and it's just, it's just fun. Yeah, I mean, there there are some jokes that don't happen anymore, and I mean, and that, I think that's what you guys mean by it. It doesn't age well, but I mean, I think the the overall, like the style of comedy, does age well, and it, it isn't it isn't that American Pie ish thing. Like the first American Pie, you don't give it credit for being as like uh, sincere and romantic as it actually is, and this movie is a lot like that. And you may not see that the first time you watch it or something, but like, and the sequels obviously of American Pie got more and more stupid. But, like, I, I don't know. I mean, there, there's something about this that I, I get. I get the characters. I get all of them. And, I mean, I think Timothy Oliphant, I mean, I've, I mean, I've always been a fan. And th this role, like, it's one of the most quotable roles, like, uh, of that era. Like, I mean, I quote that character all the time, and I don't even really realize it sometimes. But, uh, but I mean, but that's me. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, and... Uh... I, I mean, I, looking at watching this movie now and seeing all the dumb jocks and everything like that, I was thinking like this would have been like the perfect like if they could have like superimposed and CGI'd like Channing Tatum into this for the first 10 minutes of 21 Jump Street, it would have made so much sense because it was just the dumb, annoying, offensive jock. And then, and then, and then. But those, those characters are real. Like I, we, I know characters. Like I went to high school with people just like those characters. Well, that's true. We we all went to high school at that time and saw and saw the morons at that time. So, 
I mean, it's got a cool supporting cast. I mean, you got Olivia Wilde in there as one yeah. of the jock girlfriends. I mean, obviously Paul Dano is like just next level awkward in this. Like, I mean, <laughs> and um, Dexter's dad, obviously, as uh, Hugo Voss. Totally forgot J- James Remar was in there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let, let's let's talk a little bit more about this movie. Um, Todd, did you did you have any uh, any recastings you wanted to mention? I, I know you said you had had some thoughts. I didn't come up with anything. Zach, did you come up with anything? No, I did not. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, casting the like kids. The one that I was most proud of is that uh, like Klitz. I, I wanted it to be played by Ryder McLaughlin, who plays fourth grade in the uh, mid nineties, because he. <laughs> He has that awkwardness, and I think that'd be super entertaining to see him play a slightly more grown-up character. And Kelly, which is Timothy Oliphant's character, is the funnest one to recast. I said Wyatt Russell, who is, uh, he's from Everybody Wants Some, and I think Terry's in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. He has that sort of aura of just being, like, sort of being an asshole douchebag, but also sort of having something else. And I also thought of Cody Clark, who's the director of Strummer. Um, yes. but that, that character is, is so awesome. Like I remember Timothy Oliphant was on the Rich Eisen show one time. And one of the guys that never talks on the Rich Eisen. So, um, he said like, you know what? My favorite movie of yours is the girl next door. And he like flips his head around. He points. He's like, thank you. <laughs> he's like, boom, like that 15 years later, he was back in character. Cause that character is Timothy Oliphant. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, and I guess it, that leads it, into the highest war that it is him with the elephant. <laughs> I think there's a reason. Uh, there's a reason why, for a long time, our our douchebag of the movie award was named after Timothy Oliphant, and it all starts with Girl Next Door. Yeah, the Girl Next Door in Gone in sixty seconds. Like, I yeah. mean, it's he. The, every character he ever plays is that. Yeah, The Office, Hitman. Oh yeah. Yeah, they're all there. Yeah, it's a good call. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about Wyatt Russell though. I, I don't really remember him. And everybody wants some. I remember him. He was like the, the like the thirty year old player who was on the team. Oh, oh okay. yeah. I remember him as as Zook in Twenty Two Jump Street. He was the quarterback that was. Oh yeah, yeah. That was always throwing the ball to to Channing Tatum, and uh, but after watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I don't know because he is the new Captain America, and so that it kind of adds a different vibe to him that i don't know if i could necessarily jive with being kelly in this okay. I, my, my my one question is would nicholas cage be kelly or hugo that's the real question depends uh, which era I, that's true <laughs> 90s well, but, nick cage would be kelly mm-hmm. now he would 2010s be hugo yeah <laughs> well i also said he would be mule who is the uh the giant at the the porn convention in vegas that uh Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> that'd be an amazing Nick Cage role. <laughs> that's more of like a John Cena role now, though. That's true. Oh, that's okay, totally that's John true. Cena. Well, oh, well, Hugo, Hugo is obviously right now. It's Michael Shannon. Like, I mean, there, there's no other person that could play that. Yeah, yeah. isn't that basically his role in The Runaways? Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right. So you say highest war is Timothy Oliphant. That's who I had written down too. I mean, he he. As distracting as X as he may be, he is—he's insane in that role. And you could say you could say some others, but I mean, Oliphant, he, yeah, the the sleaziness yet yet still likability. 
he pulls it off to a T. So that's what I'm going with. Zach? Uh, I have a non-serious pick uh, of Paul Alicino as the voice of the parrot. I didn't realize that that was a person doing the voice of the parrot. I thought that was an actual parrot. So cradle the balls. Kudos to that actor. But uh, no, I I think my highest war. uh, Gosh, I mean, all these performances suck. I don't know. This whole movie sucks. Uh, I guess I'll go Alicia Cuthbert because I mean, there are probably other actresses who could play that. But um, I think she's really she's good in this movie for, for what it's worth. And I wanted more of her. I didn't want to see more of her. It's not like I'm prurient. I didn't want her to get naked. I just wanted more of her character fleshed out. And uh, I think she she does a good job of ever, out of everybody in this cast being someone that we want to know more about, which I think is the, pro- the fundamental problem with this movie is we don't know enough about her. She isn't a developed character in any way. And she she is one of those that it, it, she is just... The, the camera's just drawn to her whenever she's on screen, right? She just has that magnetic personality to her that you have to pay attention to her when she's on screen. And this that's was just Penny Lane. I mean, like that's what exactly. No, yeah, this is, is. A, this is totally William Miller, Penny Lane. In fact, I thought there was going to be a part where uh, he said something like, I'm going to go where many men have been before. Like there is a total oh, yeah. William Miller, Penny Lane dynamic to their relationship. And that's maybe one of the problems with this movie is that it reminded me of so many better movies. Actually, the one that I thought about a lot of, Terry, you're not going to know this, but the Decalogue episode six, this whole movie is a short film about love. Like that, that movie is all about this virginal 17 year old guy who watches this uh, goddess from across his apartment window and worships the ground that yeah, she walks on and is too afraid to do anything until she actually initiates it. And then she starts playing sexual mind games with him. And the way Kieslowski does it is brilliant and uh, exhilarating. And um, there's actually a lot of that in this movie. I wonder if Luke Greenfield actually watched Decalog episode six because there's like components of it in this movie that this movie never, never achieves, unfortunately. I also thought about movies like, uh, there's a little bit of um, She's Out of My League in this movie. There's a little bit of uh, Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. And obviously a little bit of Leaving Las Vegas and Boogie Nights, all of which makes sense why Todd loves this movie. Well, and, and it, I mean, if there was a time when Alicia Cuthbert was at her height, it was this. I mean, she was uh, in the middle of 24 when this was made. She played Jack Bauer's daughter in that. I've never seen 24, but that, that's what I've heard is she was, that's what she was in that. And, and that's where she got kind of made her name. And 24 started in 2001. This was 2004. So, I mean, that she was kind of one of the names that sold this movie. And then you had this no-name Emil Hirsch that uh, that got the got the lead. And so, Todd, all right, I, I mentioned earlier I had a story with this. So I remember hearing at one point that that uh, Emil Hirsch was 17 when they shot this movie. And one of the things that uh, that complicated that is it is um, it's illegal to uh, have minors naked in a movie. And so they, they had to make sure that they had a uh, a body double for the scenes along the side of the road. And he had to be wearing underwear underneath the uh, the inflatable as he was walking alongside the car. Ah, like like it was, it was like really, really tricky shooting to try and make that all work because he was underage. Yeah, there's a little issues with uh, some of that, like when she drives by to pick up his underwear like it shows her hand pick it up, but her door never opened. 
and the door was like <laughs> at a shoulder level. I was like, yeah, there's no way that works. <laughs> but uh, yeah. all right. Worst performance. Zach. Uh, uh, Timothy Oliphant. I think he destroys <laughs> the mood in this movie. He takes it way over the top. His scenes aren't funny. And uh, it's just, just a like wasted character. character. I also think it's a bad performance, though. You know, I think he's channeling Ray Liotta and Bill Paxton. He doesn't really do anything particularly original with the Bill character. Really? Okay. Like uh, Bill Paxton and the Terminator. That's what I see. Or Bill Paxton in True Lies or Bill Paxton in uh, Near Dark. Like like, yeah, like, like 80s, late 80s, late 80s, early 90s, Bill Paxton. Yeah. I anyway, you're, you're probably right. The character does get in the way, but I just, I was repulsed every time I watched him on screen. So that impacts my ability to, you know, discern know, his that's performance. That's what we talk about him in Douchebag. I have another douchebag. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. Uh, I will say I had written down, um, I, I don't want to mention his name. Derek, uh, played by Brian Colladies. That was a that was a quote from Itanya, by the way. Paul Walter Hauser. Shout out to Paul Walter Hauser. Um, anyways, he was one of the jock dudes. Um, and that was yeah. He he, he was the one that was having trouble. But uh, yeah, and, he and was, I kicked he him out of the party. Uh, firm nor confident. Yeah, he, yeah he, he's and he's the one that kicked him out of the party and said this party's all full, man. I, I don't know. He, he was it he was straight know. out of blue mountain state basically yeah yeah pretty much all right Todd. uh i said layered stewart as mr rooter who is like the uh i think he was teaching like some sort of geometry or something but he's also <laughs> like the chaperone at the at the prom he he's he's awful and he he is really over the top in his line delivery and I don't know. It was, it was like the the one a similar looking uh, teacher in Saved by the Bell. The I can't remember what his name is right now. Uh, nope, not gonna come up with it. Uh, yeah, but... I don't remember either. <laughs> oh, oh, I also could have gone with John Clay Scott as the uh, as the rent a cop at the at the gate of the high oh, school. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a uh, he is definitely not the MVP. Nope. <laughs> All right. Amazing Larry Big Tim High Roller goes to Todd. You're going to me first. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I really like um, I really like Mr. Kidman. Uh, you know, oh, Timothy Maddie's Bottoms. Dad. Yeah. What? Timothy Bottoms. Yeah, Timothy Bottoms. Yeah. He uh, He's like the classic high school movie dad. Like he's kind of similar to like Mr. Bueller in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's a little similar to like Alan Matthews in in Boy Meets World. Like I mean, he just is a little oblivious to everything, and it's kind of awesome. I, I kind of wanted to watch more of the the parents. Like the, I, mean, I think they were more interesting than the movie gave him credit for. Well, you know why you're saying that, right, Todd? Is because Timothy Bottoms also played a kind of whacked out teen uh, dad, teenager's dad in another much better movie about high school from the early 20s, 2000s, which was Elephant. He was the wow. uh, the, the drunk dad in that movie that uh, the guy with blonde hair drives to school because he's too drunk. So I, there was, to me, I was like, oh, the dad from Elephant. Also, interesting factoid from this movie, there was a great kind of um, all about the making of this movie article that um, the Huffington Post published a few years ago 
Uh, Emil Hirsch got this role because the director saw his audition tape for Elephant. Apparently, Emil Hirsch auditioned for Elephant. Wow. Did not get the role. Luke Greenfield saw the audition tape and thought, that's my man or my boy. Wow. That's amazing. That sounds fake. <laughs> it's true. Also in this article, uh, do you know who... So wait, is, it, is, this, is this like a scar on Gus Van Sant's like, resume? The fact that he let Emil yeah, he Hirsch cast, by? He could have <laughs> cast Emil Hirsch. Yes, apparently. Uh, do you know who also loves this movie? Who's seen, who saw this movie twice when it came out, according to this article, is none other than a director that appeared on Todd's Top 100 list only once, Steven Spielberg. Big fan of The Girl Next Door. Saw it twice. Admired the film. Well, like I said, this is an Oscar-nominated screenwriter in Stuart Blumberg. He wrote The the Kids Are All Right. I mean, this is, I mean, you could see some parallels between the, in the storytelling techniques. Yeah, and, and it's kind of interesting you bring that up, Todd, because the article actually talks a lot about the writing. Apparently, Greenfield and his buddy wrote a big chunk of this movie, but never got credit for it because of the, the strange WGA supermajority rules. So they never got attributed screenwriter credit, even though they contributed to the screenplay. There's a lot in that article kind of about that. This was, this was apparently one of the seminal movies that kind of changed the rules about how uh, writers are given credit for a movie. Hmm. Interesting. So also, Timothy Bottoms, if this movie had been made in the early 70s, he would have played Matt after his performance in Last Picture Show. Obviously, that was his that was his star making role. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, Emil Hirsch, that that's that's fascinating that he almost was an elephant. Um, let's see here. My uh, amazing Larry Big Tim high roller is uh, is Hugo. Um because I completely forgot that James Remar was in this and he showed up and like, th th he's perfect for this role and he just, he plays it just so perfectly. And I, I see him in so many things and he's distracting because he's always going to be Dexter's dad. But, um, but it worked here for some reason. I don't know. Uh, uh, stick man. Do we dare? Wait, I, I didn't, I didn't say mine. Oh, you didn't say yours. Sorry. No, uh, I went with the tie uh, or a du duo of mule and Chloe. I feel like those characters are very interesting. Um, they probably deserve a movie of their own. Their scene kind of works, except for the slapstick. Uh, but uh, they they belong in a better movie. But I, I was kind of intrigued by them. Good good performances there too. That that that's one quote I always uh, in that scene. That they're they're like uh like you at least gotta feel her tits, and then and then uh and then Clitz is like it, I'll feel one, you know, and I. I <laughs> That that's something my buddy Josh and I quote to each other when that's like, you know, you want another shot? It's like, you know, <laughs> I'll feel one. <laughs> it's a it's a horrible scene that could never be made in 2021. <laughs> I'm I'm praising the characters, not necessarily the content of the scene, but I, I see what you're okay. saying. It's a great scene. <laughs> uh, did, did, all right, Zach, I have to ask, did you watch this with the wife and what did she think? Oh, she's seen it. Uh, I did not watch it with her. Uh, she tried to reassure me oh come on it's not that bad oh, so. okay okay well apparently you gave it two stars so you agree with her i gave, i will say after reading the making of the movie i gave it like a half star higher because it sounds like th this director actually had like a really strong vision for the movie i also i do have to say i think the movie has a little bit of audacity being as 
kind of crude as it was, because I think 2004 was a very conservative time in our country morally. And I think this movie took some risks by being an R-rated movie. So I do give it props for that. I just think that it, it was unfortunate timing. I think this movie felt derivative from the standpoint of American Pie coming out so much sooner, but it was right before the 40-year-old virgin kind of re kind of changed everything and, and Apatow entered the scene. So it was kind of a weird time for this movie to come out. So I, I guess I, it was just unfortunate timing, but I give the movie some props in that regard. Yeah, writing the coattails of teen comedy before Apatow changed the yeah. game. Yeah. Stra strange environment to be working in. But Apatow didn't necessarily do it with teen comedy. But you you could say you could say that I mean you could say there's some super bad in this movie. You could say mm -hmm. there's some book smart in this. Definitely movie, forty year old virgin. They definitely. I mean, think about think, think about Elizabeth Banks. Okay, that's another thing. Like Elizabeth Banks and forty year old virgin is kind of similar to Alicia Cuthbert, and yet that character is so much more interesting, so much more well developed with less screen time. So maybe maybe it was Alicia Cuthbert's fault. I don't know, but I just felt like a better writer would have done more with that. All right. Stickman and douchebag. Zach, you're first. Stickman and douchebag. Well, obviously, the biggest stickman in this movie is Klitz. Yes. Uh, because uh, he's going to get some. I think we need to talk about Paul Dano for just a second. We all <laughs> love Paul Dano. Do you think Paul Dano is proud of this movie? I don't know. But I will I've say... heard him talk about it. <laughs> I think he likes it. <laughs> I will say Paul Dano, if you watch him in this movie and then compare him like two years earlier in Long Island Expressway... That's quite a bit of a physical transformation um, with his character. He looks a lot more like Paul Dano in this movie than he did in Long Island Expressway. But yes, uh, the, the porn actress uh, definitely thinks he's good looking. And uh, he, you know, uh, shows so his talent. the guy who the was world. watching the, uh, the video at the end. <laughs> yeah, Man, look at that very guy. impressive. Very, very impressive. <laughs> While he's wearing the fencing mask. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the fencing scene was pretty fun, though. <laughs> That one, that was great. That was, yeah, that, that was a great scene. All right. Douchebag. Oh, I got a, a douchebag too. I did say that I would come up with another one, even though I was kind of lying about it. Uh, let's see. Uh, who is a big douchebag? Oh, I was going to say the bank teller lady. Um, because yes. it's kind of her fault, right? Like she's the one that shouldn't have given the money to told Timothy Alphon. Is that her job to, you know, look at the credibility of the people who come in are trying to take the money and to her, for her to, to, you know, put it on this 17 year old kid and uh, you know, to say he's going to go to jail. I thought that was kind of a douche move. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the flaws I had written down is there yeah, is right no there. way in hell that is Matthew's I mean, she, problem. She was trying to scare him. I get it, but it's, I, it's a douchey thing to, to do scare, scare tactics like that. Yeah, no, she she was she was the one who should have asked Genius. for ID, and you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not like in Matchstick Men or whatever. It's not like during that one no, scene that he, he had he had him a uh, co-sign on the thing, like he like mm -hmm. Nick Cage did with his daughter or something like That's that. A no, good, good connection. It, yeah, I mean, it's like yeah, that was that was Maddie being still like coming down off his high of ecstasy, like not realizing the gravity of the situation. Yeah, yeah, good call, good call. Uh, Todd. Uh, I mean, there, I mean, Stickman. I mean, I could say, I, I guess I'll, I'll say Hunter, who is also a big douchebag. That's the, the, the head of the jocks. Uh, mm. And I mean, we all know a character like that. We all know a person like that. Yeah, I mean, he's, he is an absolute douchebag. He's like, oh, look at that girl. 
he's like, okay, let's do our thing. And one of them goes and like kicks the other the guy out, and the other one goes and grabs him drinks. It's like, I mean, that is a like, yeah, the, he is the head douche. Uh, and but I mean, he's also a stick man because it works for him. Uh, but my biggest douchebag. I mean, shit. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, it's obviously Kelly, right? Yeah. It. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's like a gift, you know. It's like I can't control it. Like I mean, and every, I don't know. Everything he says is just like, man, that is a great line, and it's also such an asshole thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. I mean, you could. S- Stickman. I mean, you could say Stickman and Douchebag is Kelly. But um, he's also, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, he charms the bank teller, but he also is strictly producer. <laughs> you know? Strictly producer, yeah. But he also dated Danielle at one point, so. Yeah, whatever that means. What Whatever that means. <laughs> um, yeah, he may have just been saying that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, there, There's... There's so many interesting. What's funny is almost all of them are speculative in in this. Even considering the content. Yeah, there there isn't a lot of actual sex in the movie, which is yeah, which is different. I mean, you can't say that about American Pie or anything like that. Like, there's a lot of implied things, and there's a lot of nudity and whatnot, but there's not actually a whole lot of, you know, actually vulgar material. Yeah, it's, it's something that Ebert pointed out in his review, too, where he, he talks about the frustration of the bait and switch. You know, the, the movie sets you up to believe these things, but, oh, we're not, we're going to kind of remain chaste in how we show it. But I also think that's sort of a product of working, of, of making a mainstream movie at 20th Century Fox. I mean, again, conservative time for movies, movies that really didn't want to push the envelope, at least coming from studios. So I chalk it up to that more, maybe so than the director. All right, best scene. I'll go first. I love I love his speech. It, it's it's great. Speech it was it's, not great. Oh, I thought it did it, not I, deserve I, a standing ovation. Good it, God! No, it, his speech is like ovation. the last line in the Italian job. It's basically the same same words being said. The the speech is good. Yeah, it did not deserve the standing ovation. But I it that moment where he finally is able to. I mean, whether it's drug induced or not say what he's been wanting to say and actually profess it to the public. I don't know. It, it I, I liked it. Well, it's everything leading up to the speech too. Like the speech is great. And he, he does just like speak his mind for the probably the first time in his whole life. Yeah. But it's like everything with, with him interacting with all the people, him just like randomly dancing and Alicia Cuthbert <laughs> just standing there, just like rolling her eyes or like stifling a, a smile or something. He's like touching everyone's ties and stuff like that. Like, Everything about that is super awkward, but it's hilarious to watch. By the way, low-key douchebag Ryan Winger, the winner of the scholarship. I know. Yeah, yeah because w- when he curses in his speech, he he like gets that smile like, oh, yeah, I just won this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Zach. Biggest. Best scene. Oh, best scene. Uh, oh, uh, the well, the, the the as I've alluded to already, the scenes where they the the two of them get to know each other. I think I'll go with probably the restaurant scene. 
it made me think that when he when uh she does or he he drew, drew the drawing or did she i can't remember she drew it she, she drew it yeah, that was good that was good good scene cute scene um maybe established that these characters maybe were something greater than the sum of their parts and uh i, I wish the movie had had spent more time with scenes like that all right todd i mean those were two of the top ones i wrote down too i um I, I love when Kelly first goes to the high school and he's first interacts with all the people with when he's with the girls and he's, you know, spinning his stories and he, you know, he's like, yeah, I, you know, Maddie here. I just hung with him last night. Guys, the tits. And he's like, you know, who's got the good stuff here. It's this guy right here. And he, and he, and then uh, he pulls, pulls like a bet yeah, out, of, out of, you know, out of Klitsy and, then there's that perfect moment where the jocks are coming in in slow motion and they both just give each other the eye like Kelly and the jocks are just like who the hell is that guy you know like I mean it, it's just a perfectly crafted scene and then they're like then he's like alright time to go always leave him wanting more I'm like don't you want to take a picture and then he's like and then he get, unveils this whole master plan about you know like well, I need some of those girls and those guys like a football game how do I get these like it's like a gift you know it's like I can't control it it's it's just I mean it's just I mean it's perfect acting it's a great scene <laughs> I love how you know that scene word for word that's brilliant uh I don't have an answer for this one but if there were a sequel Todd do you have an answer for that I I want to see what I mean because it's about the right time the 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 tripod, I want to know what their kids are like in high school. Because <laughs> they all would probably be somewhere in high school at this point. Or close to it, yeah. All right. Zach, did you have an answer for that one? Yeah, uh, the sequel to this movie is obviously when Matthew grows up and becomes Brian Grazer. No, sorry. Um, when Eli? Timothy, no, no, oh. sorry. <laughs> Timothy the Olafon. Timothy the Olafon <laughs> turns into Brian Grazer because of his hair. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. And Eli's his, Eli's his Spielberg or Ron Howard or whatever you want to call it. Sure. Yeah. Well, I thought Maddie and Eli, I mean, the dynamics between them are really similar to Alpha Dog with Johnny True Love and Keith because they're both are the same actors. And uh, Christopher Marquette is basically playing the same character. And if Emil Hirsch's character, Maddie, if he, if he continued in like his like pseudo badass like arc that he has in this movie, then he obviously become Johnny True Love. Maybe that's more of a conspiracy theory, but I think Alpha Dog could be a sequel. Well, let's get into that. Yeah, Laws, that's, that's a good conspiracy theories, theory. Anything like that? Todd, do you have any more? I mean, I don't think there's any flaws. I, I mean, I mean, I mean, maybe that third act goes too along a little bit too far, but I don't know. I mean, it's impossible to argue with it where where it ends up. I, I mean, I love the ending of the movie. I don't really have any other. That I haven't mentioned already. Zach? Uh, really, the only one I had was that uh, Matthew Kidman's bedroom is the same as Jim's bedroom in American Pie. They look the exact same. Okay. Well. And, oh, also. You never get the, it from the same angle. That uh, Me, a Teenage Daddy from 1974 was like a Roger Corman production. Or a Jack Horner film, one of the two. Although uh, that that brings me to another. Okay, the porn that she's in is that a Jack Horner film? That's maybe a conspiracy theory. That was very <laughs> Jack Horner. Oh, uh, yeah, the karate thing. Uh huh. Yeah. 
But though, I mean, it, it had some very Spanish pantalones vibes to did, it. Did Kelly grow up to be Jack Horner? Brian Grazer or Jack Horner? I guess those are the two. Or, or the Colonel. Strictly producer. Strictly producer. Yeah, he's, he's a so Colonel. He, that's why he's talking to the yeah. teenage girls at the school. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, All that's right. A good point. <laughs> LVP, MVP. I'll go first on this one. My LVP is Jeannie for everything we've already mentioned, how she screwed up the bank. And MVP is obviously Glitz. I mean, he, he stepped up. He did he did what he needed to do. We're a tripod, which kind of describes this podcast. All right, yep. Zach. Uh, let's see. My uh, LVP is the principal. Mm -hmm. Mr. Salinger. Mr. Salinger. Because he's not even a fan of their uh, sex ed video at the end of the movie. And, you know, if, if but he accepts it, the hell with it. <laughs> and he has a swimming pool. Yes. <laughs> that makes him the LVP. <laughs> well, he doesn't have security around his swimming pool. That's true. Uh, MVP of the movie, Marvin Gaye. Now, why was Marvin Gaye used in this movie? I, I have some serious questions about the soundtrack of this movie. This movie has like every like bland FM radio song you can imagine. But this it's not just this movie. I mean, this, this was a thing that 90s and 2000s movies did. They yep. just had every single pop song that you just know is instantly recognizable. No one got balls to do anything with avant-garde music until like David Fincher. So... It was it was pleasant to hear Marvin Gaye, Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On," during the sequence when they were trying to make the deal to make the porno, because that makes so much sense. I mean, I mean, could you say that trend started with Clueless? I mean, Clue, no, hey, listen, no, Clueless, did, what, Clueless <laughs> was not mainstream. Okay, Clueless had the cranberries, it had the muffs. All Clueless right, was right. avant-garde. <laughs> well, I don't know. This movie has so many like one-hit wonders. This it. movie is Fred Durst. I mean, come on. This now, if it, like, if it literally, it if it literally had Fred Durst, that would be an issue. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Todd, LVP, MVP. Uh, the LVP is the Rent-A-Cop. Uh, mm. I mean, he just blatantly, like, head-on collision with another car. I mean, it was a dream sequence, but still, he's a, he's a terrible Rent-A-Cop. And the MVP, I, I mean, I had written down the soundtrack because of the nostalgia of it. Uh, but I mean, I could also go with Alicia Cuthbert because I do think that she is genuinely great in this movie. So I'll go with those two. All right, all right. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't mind that call. I mean, she, she plays that part perfectly. Quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Uh, let's see here. Zach, you're first. My quote comes from Ebert's review of the movie where he says, Like a strip show at a carnival, it lures you in with promises of sleaze, and after you've committed yourself for the filthy-minded punter you are, it professes innocence. I like that Ebert is attacking the viewer in that. Shame on you for watching this movie. Shame. They call them a punter? <laughs> yeah, filthy-minded punter. 
which is also what a certain critic called Tom McCarthy uh, for that line in uh, in uh, whatever that whatever it is. Stillwater. Um, still Stillwater. No one is a punter. We're not Johnny Hecker here. Okay, we're not the guy on the Colts with his own. No one wants to be Johnny Hecker. Exactly. Anyway, that was the only quote I could think of. I, I Ebert Ebert's scorn for this movie makes me want to like it more. That's that's one of the best things it's got going for it. And that's rare. That's rare yeah. for you to say that. Yeah. Although maybe I I dislike it more than Roger does, but for different reasons. Okay. Okay. Uh, my my quote comes from my new number one of two, 2021, Nine Days, and it's just simply this: Would you pull the chair? It's such a great question. If you've seen the movie, you'd know it's it's like a fascinating moment. And gosh, that movie's good. But yeah. There's other things I could quote, but it would take longer to quote. Just would you pull the chair? Would you would you wear would you buy a necklace that says Stillwater on it? And that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Watching that trailer, I thought that I thought he was going to be so corny in that movie, and he was everything but. All right, Todd. Uh, well, the reason why I picked The Girl Next Door is because someone on this podcast like chose a movie that wasn't an anniversary movie, and I had to watch that garbage, you know, again. And so I decided to do my own in- indulgent pick. And all I can think of is Eli watching porn with his buddies, and he just puts his hand on his leg and says, learn to like it. And that's the way I feel. A good quote. <laughs> hey, have, have either of you guys seen the 2007 Girl Next Door? No. That is a good movie. That might be an assignment at some point. I didn't right. know there was one. Are you glad? Well, I yeah, I mean that's why he kept on week? asking us which which one. Whenever you said we're watching the girl next door, that does ring a bell. Yeah, <laughs> there, was there was a, a tasting. tasting. That night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we're gonna draw this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, again, make sure you check us out all over the internet. Uh, if you want to check out uh, what we said was 51 to 100 on our top 100s, check out almostsideways.com. It'll be up there. Uh, check us out next week for the reveal of 40 to 31 on our top 100s, as well as some more nonsense that you can hear here. So until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your cross behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.